Welcome to episode 14 of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. This week, uh, we're looking at controversial movies. And uh, I'm going to do what I sometimes forget to do at the beginning of the show, is to mention that as we talk about six movies, uh, there will be spoilers and there will be chorus language. I'm really excited to uh, have a uh, first-time guest on this show, uh, Lee Beckman. And... Lee, I think you you are responsible for this show existing in a way because you connected me, reconnected me with Larry Parsons and said you should be a guest on Rank and Review. And then I went on Rank and Review and uh, being a guest on that show is addictive, as you well know, because I, I could be wrong, but you probably hold the record for the most guest appearances on Rank and Review. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Thanks for doing this. Um, I, I'm really excited to talk to you about these controversial movies. Mention the movies and we'll kind of figure out what order we're going to uh, review them in in a few moments here. But, Lee, for you, what what would constitute a controversial movie? Uh, a movie that likes to play with people's morals and values. A bro you know, broaching subjects that upset people having mm -hmm. content that challenges people, uh, especially their ethics or morals. I think that that would signify being a controversial movie. But what's interesting though is like whose values, who defines these, what's controversial and what isn't. One of the things I find with almost all the movies, not, not all the movies that we're gonna be reviewing today is sex and religion. Seems like, okay, if religion's involved and sex is involved, then people automatically, you know, get their fists up and are ready to, you know, put up a fight. And that yep. was the case with a lot of these movies. There's another one, it, which is interesting to me when we get to it, where the violence is quite extreme. But you could have a million action movies and have massive death counts, and nobody's going to worry about it or protest the um, movie. But with the one particular movie, and I'm alluding to Natural Born Killers here, a lot of people were upset about it, and that could be because of the filmmaker. It could be because uh, of the attack on the media that some people might not like. The fact was there were copycat killings connected to Natural Born Killers as well, which is a whole other discussion that I know you've talked to Larry about this sometimes, about, okay, who's to blame? The three of us watch a lot of horror movies. Mm-hmm. To my knowledge, none of us have gone out and uh, gone on, uh, gone to a camp and started to kill a bunch of teenagers uh, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But if there's one media story of somebody who was a fan of a movie, then the movie gets blamed and it shouldn't have happened and they blame the artists and the creators. So that, that's the other piece there. So the, most of them are sex and religion, but there, there was some nerve that was struck with Natural Born Killers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have six movies here, and so I'm going to put you on the spot because we didn't talk about, and I always have my guests choose the order. Um, so what movie would you like us to review first? Oh, let, why don't we go in full board? Let's do David Cronenberg's Crash first. David Cronenberg's Crash from 1996, not to be confused uh, with another movie called Crash, also directed by a Canadian, uh, Paul Haggis's Crash, the, the Best Picture winner, which has its own controversies. That'll be for another day. But David Cronenberg's 1996 crash. All right. Uh, second movie. 
Oh, why don't we do Last Temptation of Christ next? Martin Scorsese's 1988, The Last Temptation of Christ. We'll go from deep, dark, depressing to beautiful and passionate. Then third. Oh, let's do Last Tango in Paris. That's probably the one that you and I will probably fight the most on. Who knows? Who knows? We'll be talking a a bit about it, yeah. Bernardo Bertolucci, say that five times, uh, is the director of it and starring starring the the great, or is he great, Marlon Brando. Uh, fourth movie. Good, he's good. Let's do Natural Born Killers. This will be the director's cut of Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers. Fifth movie. The Exorcist. William Friedkin's The Exorcist, or William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, if you want. Um, and then we're going to end off with Stanley Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Shut. We'll talk about both versions, but there was a theatrical North America cut and a European cut of the film. So, And those are the six movies. Anything else you'd like to say before we uh, start reviewing these? Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, sorry if I sound like I'm mumbling. I'm just... Uh... Part of celebrating the school year is I get little uh, Cuban cigarellos, so I'm smoking a mini cigar right now, so I apologize if I mumble. No, that's fine. Yeah, for, for us, this is the first day of the summer break. Yesterday was the uh, official last day of school, even though we've, we've, we've had a weird run as educators the last few months, uh, as everybody has in the world with COVID-19 here. In a society driven to extremes, two people met by accident. Were you badly hurt? I think we saw each other at the hospital. You haven't told me where we're going. I haven't. James Ballard has been seduced into a secret world. The car crash is a liberation of sexual energy. Where the only way to connect is to crash. That's the future, Ballard. It's something we are all intimately involved in. Why are the police taking this so seriously? They have no idea who we really are. Now, they'll do anything. Describe it to me. To feed their obsession. Is there something here that interests you? Uh, we're going to go back to 1996. It, sort of a great celebration for Canadian film was at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, the special jury prize went to a movie called Crash uh, by famous Canadian director David Cronenberg. And it's about a subsect of people in Toronto who uh, get sexually aroused by car crashes. Yep. And it starts off um, where an, uh, a film producer played by James Spader uh, gets into a serious car accident and he kills uh, this man who is at the time having sex with uh, one Holly Hunter, who is kind of the big coup uh, as far as casting in my in my view for this, this film. And through this, he starts to discover this underground subculture of scarred omnisexual car crash victims who use car accidents and the raw sexual energy they produce to try to rejuvenate their lives and in particular james spader's 
life with his wife, his wife played by Deborah Kira Unger, uh, an actor who I quite like from the 1990s. I haven't seen in a whole lot of stuff lately. And the other uh, cast members that I think are worth mentioning, there may be some others you want to mention as well. Guy who I might argue steals the film, uh, Canadian actor Elias Coteas, playing a character named Vaughn, who's kind of the leader of this this subculture. Goes around in this beat-up car and tries to uh, reenact famous celebrity car crashes. And then... um, I, I almost called an extended cameo by uh, Rosanna Arquette, who got a lot more work in the 1990s than she does now, unfortunately, playing uh, Gabrielle. Um, and so what do you think about 1996's Crash? Well, there's only one filmmaker like David Cronenberg, and only he could make a film like this. When I think of David Cronenberg's Crash, I think of sexual hedonism, because that's kind of what this film is is talking about, uh, and th- and that might be quite alienating to you know us normal folks. But Cronenberg is sh- shining not a moralist view on really broken, damaged people. Like he, I, one thing I love about him is he's very analytical. He, he's cold sometimes in his analytical examination or viewpoint, but he doesn't really judge these people, uh, at least not openly. But these people, both Ballard, played by Spader, and, and Catherine is the wife's name? Uh, yes, Catherine Ballard, yeah. By, played by Deborah Ungerker. Mm-hmm. I said that correctly. Um, when we meet them, uh, they have, they're the kind of people that they're very wealthy, they're white, they are very good looking, and they've probably exhausted all of their desires by the time we meet them. Uh, even how they speak, you know, like the movie starts with them both engaged in infidelity, open infidelity, yeah. and they're not really sexually aroused by by what they're doing. They've been so beaten, not, beaten down is not the word. Um, they've just experienced so much that very little provides any emotional reaction for them. Even when they, you know when they meet up later uh, and they're talking about their experiences, it's very it's almost like a scientist talking about you know their their latest experiment. It, it, it's there. Most people would be upset that you know their their husband or partner has cheated on them, but these two you know have been doing this for quite some time and they're so indifferent to it. They're so cold. In fact, even. Uh, Catherine Ballard, as she's speaking, lifts up her skirt and shows her buttocks to James, saying, come on in. It's very mechanical. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, you're you're having two characters that you're having a very difficult time having any sort of empathy. Uh, but you're also intrigued by, by their journey throughout the film. For a film that has a lot of graphic sex, it is not sexy. There are some sexy moments, but... This film is a cold, dark pill that kind of exhausts you by the time the end credits uh, come up. So it's not a long movie. It's really not a long movie at all. No, it's tight. It's tight. The the movie moves Mm -hmm. and it's never boring. You may be disgusted by it. I know Ted Turner, he owned Fine Line Features and hated the movie and actually held it back in North America for the longest of time. He sunk it, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a big deal coming out of the Cannes Film Festival, and then it wasn't released, wasn't released, and 
buried it sort of early in the movie year and it's almost a forgotten film yet it was a i remember it was a big deal when it first came out and in europe but here are just yeah there was there's still quite a large level of censorship in the 90s in uh in the United States. In the States, I would say so. Here, it played unrated in Canada without missing a beat. But that's Canada for you. And and the coldness makes sense. Like I I go back to there's a quite a quite a long monologue that uh, Deborah Kerr has while she's having sex with James Spader, and she's talking like very graphic language in terms like this got an NC seventeen rating. And what I've heard is. The ratings board at that time and even maybe to today they don't mind having nudity in films but if you actually talk about having sex then that's going to have uh, a greater impact in where the ratings board goes and and these characters are very honest about uh, about what what they um the sex and what they're talking about some memorable moments you might have some different ones than i do a car wash sequence where james spader is in this car, in the car wash, watching his wife have sex with Elias Koteas. Um, they kind of make out, and then it gets more and more extreme. And this is just really out in the open in public, so there's a part of that. And then the other kind of big one, I think, is this elaborate sequence with Rosanna Arquette and James Spader, where they, they go and they, they buy this car, and he is uh, looking at the the scars on her legs and begins to ha basically have sex with the, the scars and 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 uh yeah it's 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 a really i've never seen anything like it yeah you never will you before never will. or or since and I, i'm not sure if they could make a movie like this now so i think you're absolutely right that cronenberg's the only guy to have made this uh acting wise i think you know it's it's a little bit of a it's not quite a mixed bag i think most people are pretty good Spader is solid. He seemed very comfortable. Like going back, he was in lots of movies like this in the '90s. Before he, for a little while, he became a bit of a comedic actor, which was to me it was a little bit of a, a departure from what he had done with independent films in the '90s. He seems pretty comfortable with the material. As I said, I think Elias Koteas is the most interesting, bizarre character. Pretty much a villain. Pretty much an antagonist. But a very he doesn't look like it. But he's a kind of this sexy charismatic character in this this world that we're exposed to i think he's great i i i feel really weird that my criticism is directed towards holly hunter because i think she's just a great actor her performance in the piano is one of my favorite performances of all time i'm always excited to see her in a film i'm not sure like the cerebral kind of robotic nature of cronenberg's films some actors are really good at, at this. I didn't think that Hunter was as good as some of the rest of the cast. Maybe it's a controversial statement. Maybe it isn't. What do you think? Uh, I think she did what she could with the role. None of the characters really are all that deep and complex. Um, it's almost like a... I don't want to say it's a satire or farce, but it definitely is it along those themes. They're... they're caricatures more than their characters uh and you'll find that a lot with satire natural born killers kind of falls in the same category where they are more they're definitely at service to the story or the narrative that cronenberg and jg ballard are wanting to explore than giving 
deep, deep characters. So I think she did fine for what the role asked of her. I, I had no problem with her. Uh, I agree with you that Elias Coteus is definitely the, the real reason to watch this movie. He's kind of like Victor Frankenstein mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. This is the first time I clocked him when I saw this movie. I, I didn't know that much about him, and I saw more and more films with him in it after this, and then led to him being in some fantastic American films like Zodiac, for example. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, this I think this is the movie that really put him in, at least sort of into the American film eyes of a lot of people. He'd been around for a while. I mean, he was in that Adam Agoyan film, Exotica, I think he's in The Adjuster. He was Casey Jones in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie way back Oh, then. I remember that one. Yeah. He's been there for a while, but I know this is the film that a lot of American filmmakers went, oh, that's really good. And he's, and, and he's really good in it. He's quite the demented character. Yeah, and it was funny. It, I, I saw Exotica. And I didn't clock him in it. And afterwards, when I went back to see it, I was like, oh, that's Elias Coteas playing that role. And I, I had remembered his scenes, but I just didn't know who he was when I first saw Exotica, which is another terrific film to talk about another day. A good juxtaposition of performances is Vaughn and Crash. And then you look at his, at his character in The Thin Red Line. They are literally night and day. <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah. Shows the range of him as an actor. And he's kind of... Uh, been treated as a character actor and not given as much to do in his in his uh, more mainstream career, let's say. So you're a fan of Crash? I think it's I think it's brilliant. Do I enjoy Crash? I don't think you're supposed to enjoy Crash. No, you're not. No, no. And I don't. A lot of these movies, I very few of these movies would I recommend to just anybody. Yeah. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't recommend Crash to just anybody. No, no. Um, because it like it's an ugly movie about very, very broken people. And I think one of the things that made it so controversial is that Cronenberg, even though he is a moralist, he doesn't put a, a critical eye on these people. It's just examining it and let's see where this goes and we get our own thoughts and feelings as a viewer uh, about it. That I think is one of the reasons why it's so good. I think a lesser director would have had a very, very critical eye on these people and I think J.G. Ballard, because I've read the novella of it, uh, mm -hmm. is a lot more critical of it. Where Cronenberg, like I said, just says, okay, here, here's the pathology of these people. And once again, we get the theme of how human consciousness or, or the human condition is, is altered by technology, by, in this case, cars. Um, I don't know about you, but have you ever gotten behind the wheel of, of say, like a big truck? Or my family bought an SUV recently. And the difference between the car we had before, which was this like small little vibe, this SUV, like I did feel powerful for the first couple of weeks driving it, where I almost had this, almost this uh, self-absorbed right to the road where I shouldn't have. So getting behind a powerful engine uh, definitely, I'd say, alters your pathology a little bit. And that's something that I think some people have a hard time. Well, I don't know. I don't know, maybe I have a hard time thinking about or even examining, but I definitely understand the themes that both Ballard and Cronenberg are going for. And I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's it's such an interesting movie. If I was to have a criticism of it, it would be that it feels almost like a series of sketches. Like they just kind of arbitrarily put two of the characters together for sequences where they go and do something and eventually they have sex. And yep. then we move on to the next episode. So... As far as it, you know, it sets up its story, 
There's a very clear climax and resolution, but in the middle, we're just seeing, let's just pair up all these different actors and, and see what happens. But there, there is something I like about it. Another kind of fun thing with J.D. Uh, Ballard, I believe his first name is actually James, uh, which is the same name as James Spader's character. So, And I kept thinking when I was watching James Spader, his character's name is James as well. So he must have, uh, Cronenberg must have had him in mind uh, from the beginning there. Uh, and I guess Holly Hunter's in the movie, even though I, I don't think she was given enough to do. But she was begging Cronenberg for year, years to be in one of his films, and uh, this was the one where it worked out. So I'd be interested to see what she would do in kind of a, one of his... He never makes a mainstream movie, but his, like, A History of Violence or Eastern Promises, a movie like that, if he was to work with Holly Hunter, what, what would happen there? But... Uh, yeah, um, my thumbs up for Crash. I think you like it a little bit more than I do, though. Oh, I do. I do. It, it's it's a challenging, challenging movie. And I remember seeing it with an ex-girlfriend of mine, and she hated it. In fact, she couldn't watch all of it. And, and, and I don't blame her. Um, Not it, a date movie. <laughs> no, no, no. That was part of my fault. It's it's a really challenging movie. It's it's it, it's like looking at a Francis Bacon painting. We'll get We'll come to him later. Um, but something that is ugly that where most people just kind of look away, but other people kind of go, okay, why is this? You know, why, why, why do, why are we voyeurs? Why do we, you know, at a car accident, we should look away because we're seeing a lot of human misery, but at the same time, you know, we go up and we look at it. I've known a couple people like the Ballard and Catherine character where they, they can get anyone married, single, bi, straight, whatever. They, they, they are that confident in their beauty and in their skills that the thrill of the hunt is gone. And I've only seen an, I've only seen maybe another film like that that explores that kind of pathology of really broken people. One of my favorite movies is Damaged by Louis Mal that explores yeah. a similar theme where damaged people are dangerous. Crash definitely explores that where Cronenberg considers the ending a happy ending. And a lot of people kind of went, really? That's that's a happy ending. But the story, the the true narrative is the marriage, the, the relationship between James and Catherine. And it's only when she finally has her crash, sort of at the end, that they establish an, you know, a true emotional connection. And so for Cronenberg, that's the happy ending that even though she might not have had her crash per se, there's a love there that maybe would have died out. They're, they've gotten really comfortable in the relationship. So the fact that it's willing to explore and not judge uh, some very, very difficult themes has a lot of artistic merit for me. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that's tough and getting back to why these movies are viewed as controversial, I think sometimes it, it draws too much raw nerve for some people mm -hmm. because Deep down, everybody has something like this, but they aren't really willing to explore it. And when they see a movie that is throwing that in their face, the immediate reaction is, I hate this. Nobody should see it. It's pornography or it's whatever. And so that's what happened here. And uh, and so I, I, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to get a copy of, of this version of Crash and to get word out about it because a lot of people um, may have not know about it yet. I don't recommend it to just anybody. No. Well, I remember when they gave 
uh, the award because it didn't win the Palm or Palm Door. It won something jury, like, the jury prize. Yeah. The jury prize. I know Francis Ford Coppola was the one that gave it to him, and it said for originality, something else, and audacity. And I thought that was very telling. It is a very audacious movie. It, it, it's at, at times begging you to not like it. The the Vaughn character is is is, is a tough one because. He is a mad scientist uh, and becomes very obsessed with giving Catherine her crash. The scene that was hard for me, the hardest scene, honestly, was when James is after, I think, the sex scene between Juan and Catherine. And she's so bruised and Spader, like they're lying naked in bed and Spader's going over her body, almost in a sense of horror. And, and Catherine at that point, she's experienced something that she hasn't before. And that's, it's hard for people to see violence as a form of healthy communication. And another film that got in trouble for that was Fight Club. I, I was gonna mention Fight Club. I was gonna mention in relation to another movie we talked about, as, as I said, I'm listening to the shows backwards. I recently heard your review of Fight Club on Rank and Review. And, uh, and yeah, that was something that, that you talked about as far as violence is healthy communication between men. Yep, it, it, I mean, you have to be careful. <laughs> Uh, but I think like there's the old story where, you know, two men f physically fight and then like after they go for a beer because they have released that sort of tension that was that was being caused. But two women fight and they're and they're enemies for the, you know, to the end of time. It's a cliche, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure there are there are lots of people that are different. But I yeah, I, I think selling a narrative where violence especially sexual violence can be a form of healthy communication definitely pushes some buttons but at the same time we live in a world where 50 shades of gray is a popular best-selling series and movie series so it can't be that controversial can it that's something i've never read and watched or anything but yeah i i guess it had a little bit of controversy and a few protests but people after a while just accepted it and well, it's softcore pornography. It's it's the kind of stuff that you know might be a, a novel shared at, in a book club in, in the suburbs, but mm -hmm. not used uh, Seems like Dakota Johnson has survived that particular series and is getting other work. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah. all right, yeah, very good. Anything else about Crash you'd like to say? Uh, well, it's definitely the more interesting Crash movies. Uh, take nothing away from the other other Crash film, but it's a film that. I know I will be revisiting. Um, it's it there. Honestly, there's no film like it ever, and I don't think there will yeah. be another film like it at all. And that's kind of the beauty of David Cronenberg when he finally and he might be done making movies. He says when he finally sh shifts out this mortal coil. There is no other filmmaker like it, and Crash is a, is a shining example of that. I mean, when The Fly is one of your most mainstream films, I mean that's, <laughs> that says something. Yes, it is.
Martin Scorsese brings us a startling vision. An extraordinary story. The Last Temptation of Christ. After uh, I saw The Irishman last fall, I immediately posted a message that I officially declare Martin Scorsese the greatest filmmaker of all time. I know you really love Scorsese. I don't know if you agree with me on that because I know there's several directors you like, but I know you really like Scorsese. Mm -hmm. And here is one of his three religious films, and it was the first one. All of them are religious, though. All of them are religious in one way, but overtly religious. We have the three are The Last Temptation of Christ, Kundan, and uh, Silence. And The Last Temptation of Christ was a very controversial film. There were protests all over the world because of this film. It's still to this day banned in many countries. It can't be played on television or anything like that. I remember looking back at one of those um, retro CTV stories where they talked about back in this day, back in 1988, The Last Temptation of Christ opened at the Pacific Cinemas and there was a group of people that were out there protesting its release as well. It essentially tells the life of Jesus Christ as played by Willem Dafoe and a journey through his life as he faces the struggles all humans do and his final temptation on the cross. And I think there's some things that the Catholic and Christian community didn't like. Some of the Catholic community, some of the Christian community, yeah. When the, there's some stuff beforehand, but when we actually see his last temptation and he gets off the cross and we see a version of what Jesus's life could have been if he hadn't have died for everybody's sins. That's where we were probably running into a little bit of trouble with those who would protest this, right? Yeah. Um, I I do think sometimes, and unfortunately I don't own a copy of it because at one point we talked about having the last temptation of Christ and the passion of the Christ in the same episode. And it was a different group of people that were protesting the passion of the Christ to uh, the last temptation of Christ because the Christian community, Catholic communities got behind Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, but were against Scorsese, who is a Catholic himself, is The Last Temptation of Christ. And the book itself uh, led to excommunication. Uh, we were just talking about how we're going to butcher the name of the author of... Uh, the source material, Nikos Kazantazakis. And that's... Gazunte. Yeah, exactly. He was excommunicated from... He was kicked out of the Greek, or, Greek Orthodox Catholic Church. They're pretty hard for, though. Because of the novel. Yeah. For me, I'm not sure if I actually show this to a modern audience member that they would be quite getting what the controversy is all about. I think for a modern audience, there might be more of a, a tough sell at the pace of the film because it is a three-hour film and it doesn't move. It's not like a crash or a natural born killers that we'll talk about later. Uh, it moves at the pace it needs to to tell the story. Yeah, I, I do think there would still be some people that have trouble with a scene where uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene have sex. And that's something that gets pointed out. Perhaps some people would not be happy with the more positive characterization of Judas, who is often considered the the one who betrayed Christ and is a villain in the in the in the resurrection story. Uh, I think that's probably the one that caused the most uh, fury, to be perfectly honest. Anyway, I really, really 
admire Scorsese because this was the second time he tried to get it to work. He had a deal in Paramount in the early uh, early 80s. Robert De Niro might have played Christ in that movie. Horribly miscast if he would have been. I don't know what that would have been like exactly, but, but then the money was pulled and this deal happened but he was given like next to no money to make this biblical well if you want to call it a biblical epic but this epic film and they had to cut corners in a few places but uh it is also kind of unique in a way it's the only time apparently on record that uh martin scorsese film has had a razzie nomination yep was for harvey keitel yep um and uh harvey keitel plays plays judas First time I saw it, I was distracted by Kaitel in that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, second time, I was less less distracted. I kind of went along with it. I think there's a thing where the Jewish characters were supposed to all be kind of uh, New York, have New York accents. Yeah. And then the Romans are all British. Uh, so we see, for example, uh, David Bowie plays Pontus Pilate. Yep. Here. And so and it's quite a good cast. I, I might argue that... Defoe is very good. I, I I like what he does. Yeah. yeah. But he's always, to me, he's always interesting, even if he's in kind of a, a bad film. Uh, Barbara Hershey, though, probably gives the best performance. I don't know if you agree or not, uh, but played Mary Magdalene. I I, yeah. I I like her a lot, but maybe that it was a more challenging role for Willem Defoe. I don't know. Yeah. No. Um, uh, well, it's a very beautiful movie. Um, being agnostic like myself, um, I can definitely understand the beauty and the grace of at least trying to understand the divine, which this movie tries to do. Its greatest sin, and I use this, you know, tongue firmly, tongue firmly planted in my cheek, is that it takes a postmodernist approach to the story of Jesus, and I think that's really what got people in a kerfuffle. There hadn't been a film at that point, at least to my knowledge, that showed Jesus more as human than 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 the divine and divinity and that played with a lot of people's conception on what christ was what scorsese was trying to do and you can argue whether he did that successfully or not successfully is to make it relatable to a 21st century audience that you know at that point there'd been lots of religious theories uh that had come through the postmodernist time, uh, exploring the issue, well, if he was the son of God, you know, what would those doubts, what would the human side feel like? If, you know, if you know that you're the son of God, you're going to have some confidence, son, because you've got the power, like the greatest power behind you. And there are times where, where Jesus does show some arrogance, which, which was, I thought, refreshing, but it was also refreshing because we've all had doubts. Not one human being can say, like, I haven't had doubts about, you know, how we treat people or my impure thoughts. Well, what happened if Jesus, because he was human, had these thoughts? And let's explore that, you know. You know, he wanted to, you know, marry and have children and, and make love to his wife. Well, that's that's an idea that especially to a lot of Christian religious right-wing Christians, uh, Christian people, that's a foreign concept to them. You know, Jesus, Jesus was white. He was pure. He died for our sins. End of story. Well, the the Renaissance. Yeah. King Um, James kind of idea, I guess. Yeah. Um, Exploring that, I, I, I can understand why people are upset. Seeing Jesus, you know, making love to Barbara, to Mary Magdalene, uh, Honestly, I think the biggest thing that I could see people being upset at is Judas Iscariot because, you know, being called a Judas is like 
it's a pretty bad insult. Yes. Here he is. He is very sympathetic. Jesus's best friend is told to betray Jesus by Jesus because this is God's will. So the whole idea that fate rules supreme, all of this is part of God's divine plan. I think that's really hard for some people to really grasp that because even the evil in this world, that's part of God's plan. And that, that, that can be challenging to some people. And I still think it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. I think mm -hmm. people- Lovely. What a, what a great score. Um, Peter Gabriel just a ton of stuff that's clever about it. I mean, nobody disputes that Jesus was a human being. Mm -hmm. So if Jesus was a human being, Jesus had thoughts and feelings just like all of us. Yeah. Why not explore them? Judas was a follower of Christ, was at the Last Supper. He would not have been there if Jesus did not trust him, if there was not a trust. So something happened before. He wasn't just like some, you know, broad-based evil character, right? And like whether whatever the story about his betrayal was, but Christ said, now it's either it was a prophecy or it was a direction that he's to betray him to make this happen, right? Another thing that I think is, is absolutely, um, absolutely brilliant was the characterization of Saul and Paul. Okay. Because we, we get to see in the, by the way, I mean, the great Harry Dean Stanton, who I miss seeing in, in films, he's always welcome in any movie that I see. I love him in all of the David Lynch films and that kind of thing. But we see him as Saul and he's, you know, attacking Christians and killing Christians as Saul did. Then we see him in this human version of what would happen if Christ stepped down from the cross mm -hmm. and we see him telling the story of the Bible because after all of the dust settled with uh, Jesus crucifixion and rising from the dead and the apostles being killed and all that, who tells the story of the new Testament? Most of it is written by Paul. We see a scene with Jesus and, and Paul and Paul saying, if, if the truth came out, people would be so depressed. Like, I have to tell them this stuff because you you didn't do what you were supposed to do. I also like that scene where basically the world is burning and and, and then we and then Judas comes in and played by Kaitel and he's getting mad at Jesus about like you were supposed to die for our sins. Look yeah. what we've done. The selfish selfish action that you did has doomed us all. Yeah. And then we go back and we see, okay, this was all a thought. Mm -hmm. The whole thing was a thought in that one moment where Jesus questioned, like, why have you forsaken me? And I think it's absolutely brilliant. There are some things which, you know, may or may not be true that, you know, theologians could get upset about. But as far as uh, a way to take a look at the life of Christ for a 20th century, now a 21st century audience, I think it's a worthwhile film. And, you know, I, I'm not terribly offended by it, but I guess... It takes a lot for me to be offended by a film. So, and I'm guessing you're not offended by it. You understand why people were offended. But so then what we're left with besides all that is, is it a great film? I think it's a very, very good film. And if you're looking at the more artistic, non-gangster picture Scorsese films, mm -hmm. uh, it is it is absolutely remarkable that like the, the range of this guy from, you know, Goodfellas, which came out two years after this, and Last Temptation of Christ. Same guy made Hugo, for example. I mean, he's he is, to me, the greatest loving filmmaker um, and maybe the greatest filmmaker of all time. 
and this is just such an interesting addition in his canon. And I, I'm not sure a lot of people have seen The Last Temptation of Christ in comparison to some of his other films. It's funny. I've seen Last Temptation like once. I saw it once in the 80s, once in the 90s, once in the 2000s, and now I've seen it again for this podcast. And I get something different out of it every single time. Uh, last time I saw it, I was kind of going through a phase where I was being really reflective. I actually saw it in South Korea last time and thinking, wow, I've done a lot of, you know, not good stuff in my life. How can I redeem myself? Uh, and that's one of the things that Last Temptation talks about. You know, that Jesus died for our sins so you can get into the kingdom of heaven. Um, and a lot of this, free will is taken out of the story a lot. I know that seems kind of funny because uh, the power of choice, uh, you know, you know, Jesus does get tempted. But ultimately, he makes the choice that saves humanity. Mm -hmm. um, but in that argument, every single person has some value. And it was going to come out that way no matter what, including the devil itself. Like it, it, the devil's put there for a purpose. And if that's the case, if that's the case, that's, that can be kind of very scary thing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, God allows the devil to exist. He, it, it has the power to blow the father of lies into oblivion and yet he doesn't and probably still loves that fallen angel in, in, in some sort of way that, that you know there's a purpose to its existence and that's kind of a scary thing to me in a lot of ways it's, especially with all the you know awful stuff that's going on uh, in this postmodernist world a lot of times you ask well why god what you know why did you do this and you know, having this this sort of simplistic answer of well that's god's will that's hard for a lot of people to swallow it, it's a it's not a perfect film uh i think Scorsese trying to bring a modernist brush to it and to make it relatable works in some cases. I do think Kaitel's miscast. Uh, the whole I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. Part of it is the direction and what Scorsese was going for. Uh, you know, just the Bronx accent, and part of it's Kaitel himself. I love Harvey. Harvey's one of my favorite actors. Um, I kind of question having seen a lot of body his body of work. He does have a limited range. He's very good at being that intense actor, but I don't I don't see him in a lot of romantic comedies. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that he's the conduit for Scorsese. In fact, Kaitel is usually the conduit conduit for Scorsese in a lot of the movies. Maybe not Taxi Driver, but definitely in Last Temptation. You get the sense that Scorsese is the Judas character who's always prodding, questioning. God or divinity, yeah. um, and I and I, that's refreshing. But I, if you were going to put this in a release, release this movie in twenty twenty, you'd have to recast Judas and you'd have to recast Jesus. Yeah, like I think Defoe did a good job. I mean, there there were other options. Um, I yeah, I, I'm a little bit torn on it. There's something about Kaitel didn't feel comfortable. Like you tell him his line delivery, it's a little bit more stiff than usual. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about a, a movie I, I finally saw recently, Holy Smoke. That's a good one. Yeah, it's an interesting movie, but Kaitel is in that, that way. I'm not sure, he, other than the fact he has a relationship with the director, Jane Campion, he was an interesting choice for that role, too. So sometimes if we get him into, like, Bad Lieutenant and Reservoir Dogs and some, some of these roles that he really shines in, uh, in in things like that here, it makes sense. I'm not sure it was a Razzie nomination type of thing, but... Everything but, else 
so well done that it's just you're kind of taken out of it especially the like the first 45 minutes of the movie you get used to it as it goes along the reason why i i, I would recast uh, the jesus role and maybe even the mary role uh is that we have a lot of actors now that are people of color and jesus wasn't white yeah neither was mary and that was and that was something that that i watched this time where i went uh, yeah because this is this is from a viewpoint from an elder, elderly white man who wants to make it relatable. Well, if you're going to make it relatable in 2020, you're going to have to choose a dark-skinned actor. Yes. And like, like a Pedro Pascal or a Benicio Del Toro to make it a lot more relatable, especially with Catholicism. Uh, Latin America, there's a huge Catholic population in Latin America. So take nothing away from the Defoe performance or the Barbara Hershey, but you're going to have to cast people of color in those main roles. I agree with you. Yeah. And I think a big reason Barbara Hershey's in the movies, she's the one who gave the book to Scorsese when they made Boxcar Bertha. Yeah. And but she campaigned like crazy for this. And he made her audition for the role because he didn't want it to look like she'd kind of, you know, by giving him the book and everything had improperly earned the role. So I look, she's good. They're both yeah. good. The default yeah. Everything, Harry Dean Stanton's good, David Bowie is good. A little bit distracting to see David Bowie, but that, that'll always be the case. It's distracting when he shows up in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. I know a movie I like a lot more than you do, but um, but he, he serves the role well. I mean, Bowie was was a pretty good actor as well as uh, as a musical legend. So again, the idea yeah. though, that uh, Pontius Pilate then is righteous then, can you imagine that I, that idea? that he was part of God's plan and that he had to kill or order the death of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. that, I, that, 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 that thought hasn't left me, to be perfectly honest. But I got that vibe in both, even though they're considered opposite ends of the spectrum there, in both Last Temptation and Passion of the Christ. Like, this was all meant to be, and there's this point where it's just like, I, I have no choice. Like, I'm trying to give you an out here, and you're not letting me and yeah it's all it is all part of the plan so but the question is then are they are are these character villains if their free will was taken away because they had to be part of the plan for for christ to die so well and that's one of the difference between the passion of the christ and the last temptation the passion is very old testament like Mel Gibson belongs to an old sect of Catholicism. Pretty hardcore if you look into it. It's it's a lot cruder in its tone as well. Where Last Temptation really is about love. It really is about the love of humanity. And that's, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the exorcist because I want to talk about that again. But this is a, a torturous examination of a man filled with doubt, but ultimately love. Mm -hmm. And I love the scene where they're going to the wedding and he's got Judas and he's got Mary Magdalene and he's talking with this guy. He said, what do you think heaven's like? You know, like it's a wedding, it's a celebration every single day and all of God's people are invited. And that's true. You know, at the when, when we finally die, all our wealth is stripped away, our health, mm -hmm. our status. This is why I love to play every man. The only thing that we're really left with is our our deeds both good and bad and hopefully by the end of it we've got more of good and whether you believe there is a heaven or not you know ask ask for forgiveness and we're human mate like we are flawed by by design so that's why i'm not saying you you should learn from your mistakes to be and always strive to be a better person but forgive yourself forgive yourself when you 
fuck up. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's, There's it's something cool about it. It's not a perfect movie. Like the Kaitel thing, I just wish they would have recast it. That's all. But, I don't think it's just Kaitel, but yeah. yeah. It blows my mind that there was a religious group that actually burnt a theater. They didn't burn it completely to the yes. ground. People got injured. Like people were upset about this movie. It was Paris, wasn't it? I or, think, yeah. yeah I, mean, France, I heard somebody that there was at least one person who died. Yeah, I possibly. Yeah. I know one group went to Universal because they were the studio that released it uh, and asked they were going to buy the the negative print of it to burn it, and thankfully they they didn't. I mean, they it's censorship of the, the highest level, so. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad that didn't happen. I'm I'm not a fan of censorship in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I can watch a movie, disagree with it, or don't go and see it if it bothers you. But to destroy a work of art, then that that would be a shame. Well, I'm curious. I know Paul Verhoeven for years had wanted to do a biopic on Jesus, and if you thought Last Temptation was going to be pushing buttons, yeah, holy, because Verhoeven severely doubts that Jesus was the Son of God. He says he might have been a prophet, but the son of God, that that would piss a lot of people. Yeah. So I, I'd be curious to see that crazy Dutchman get his get his uh, film out. And that's what and that's really what this is. Is it's the postmodernist approach to the story of Jesus that really pissed a lot of people off. Good enough. Uh, just one one more thing, just for the record. It's one of the few movies to only get one Oscar nomination, and that Oscar nomination was Best Director. So somehow the love of Scorsese got through with the Academy, even if they maybe were hesitant to fully embrace the film in other categories. I also love how he ends the movie, where all of a sudden the film has like some cigarette burns and it starts to burn and dissolve. And that and that's Scorsese uh, telling the people that this is just a story. This is an interpretation. He's breaking the fourth wall. I think it's probably the only time he's ever done that in his films. Uh, I thought that was a pretty masterful approach, burning the film. I, if it was released in 2020, we'd almost have that internet swirl of, of the file loading, and I wonder how that would, would play. But I, I love the fact that he ends the film with the music coming up, and all of a sudden, the, you know, the film print starts to tear and, and deteriorate. I thought that was a really nice touch. I, I read, and that might be inaccurate, what I read, that that was a happy accident. Was it? I it, like I, it was, They said it was something divine happened with that, because normally it'd be a disaster, but it was the perfect thing, and Scorsese saw that and, and used it. But Oh, I... I heard and read that, that that was deliberate that he was doubling down saying this is not the gospels this is a postmodernist approach and, and this is just a story to explore a lot of theological themes that have been going on in a lot of universities whether it be judas or the human element and that's what i love as well is here it takes a humanistic approach to the story of jesus and not the divine wrestling with what's left of his of his humanity it, it's i don't know it's it, it, it it's it's a pretty powerful movie
I think the controversy around Last Tango in Paris has been increased in the last few years. It was controversial to begin with because it was an X-rated film. Now, when I say X-rated, there was no NC-17 once upon a time. So you had PG, you had G, PG, R, and if it was beyond R, then it would be given an X rating. And it's a shame that the NC-17 never caught on. Yeah, it, NC-17, I, some people don't like it, but I, I kind of get... But it, it turned out it was like death for films and in box office. And that's why studios got to this unrated business with video releases or more DVD releases and that kind of thing. So it had the controversy of having very explicit sexuality. But there's some stuff that has come out about what went on in the set, kind of orchestrated by the director, Bernardo Bertolucci, Oscar winning director for The Last, uh, Last Emperor. But he was very interested in kind of sexually explicit films. I think, but exploring different themes. It wasn't just about the sex necessarily. And then no. Roland Brando, who's some in some circles considered the greatest actor in the history of film, who's the star of the movie. And he uh, he's a man, an American businessman who is in Paris and uh, his wife has committed suicide and he's in a very oh. dark dot 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 or was she yeah and he appears in this apartment that this young parisian woman is looking at and they both decide to live there but and they have this relationship which has pretty much a lot of emotion but no emotion because it's purely sexual and then they have their separate lives because he ha uh she has a fiance who's making this strange film which centers around following her around paris and he's dealing with uh his his, his now deceased wife's family and it was a very celebrated film had two oscar nominations best actor for brando best director for bertolucci and it was considered to be kind of you might argue marlon brando's last great method performance before he started to get in the way of himself mm -hmm. his career in some ways most of brando's performances improvised and bertolucci embraced brando's method whereas other directors after this got into fights with Brando about how he wanted to approach his work on a film set and I think if I was directing him at that time even though he's brilliant I might have had some trouble with some of the stuff he was pulling in the years after this in this movie, he was free to do all of the stuff that he wanted to do. And part of that leads to the problem. So Maria Schneider is the actor who plays the young woman. And so there, there's many scenes where both actors are having sex and very explicit nudity. And there's this scene where Brando's character played by his character's name, Paul, is going to have anal sex with her and uses butter and to lube her up before this. We're going right there right of bed. Okay. We're going, let's just go right there to the, the controversy because I think this elevates this into a s extremely controversial film. Yeah. And one that we need to sort of, I, I don't think you can get away. It's tough because then it becomes a little bit like the Jeepers Creepers type of a review that we did on, on Larry's show. That that kind of thing where... Vast difference though. And I'll, there, there, yeah, no, this one didn't involve children, even though this she was quite a young woman. There, there are many differences to yeah. Creepers. I will still defend Jeepers Creepers just for the mere fact, especially the horror genre, loves to explore topics that are taboo. One of the main differences is that Salva got caught got imprisoned and has done his penance and, can, is, and is continued doing his penance. 
Mm-hmm. Bertolucci died, and so did Brando. Yeah. the controversy came up back again with the Great Fury. And same with Brando. Like up until Bertolucci's death, those two. Yes, there was criticism on Brando, but definitely not Bernardo all that much. But and, yeah, I got back to him. They bo- anyway. I just want to finish what was done in case people don't know. Is the whole thing with the butter? They did not ask her permission or yeah. let her know. They yeah. just went into the take and did this. But together, Bertolucci said, "We want a genuine." reaction from her. I think the quote from Bertolucci is, I wanted her to react as a girl, not no. as a character or as an actor. And so going to that deep method territory to do this, but using method acting as an excuse to commit a sexual assault. In some circles, it was re- referred to as a rape that they, even though, as I understand it, they didn't actually have sex in that. It was, related, yeah. it was the action, right? So, uh, and in the age of, um, you know, talking about consent, I mean, this is an enormous black mark on the legacy of this film, which was quite celebrated, mostly like in Europe and in art circles. It's not thought of in the same way as, let's say, The Godfather is or Streetcar Named Desire, but people have seen it and would call it one of Marlon Brando's best performances. Is that still true? How do we feel about The Last Tango of Paris in Paris, knowing all of this? And does that color our perception of it? I think it colors mine. I'm getting the sense it colors yours. Yeah, it's impossible for it not to color the movie, especially in 2020. It it was hot. At the very least, it's highly unprofessional what they did. My my understanding of it was Bernardo who came up with the idea uh, and and Marlon agreed to it. They both thought the scene needed more. The fact that they didn't tell Schneider about the butter at the least is uh, unprofessional. At the most, it's hugely unethical, immoral, and criminal. Um, she's 19, and like just reading about her life after the movie and how she was seen, you know, as the set as the sex object that she was getting roles that were very sexualized and she wanted to get away from it. Big drug addiction too, I think. Yeah, well, it it just seemed the catalyst for her downward spiral where Marlon went on and same with uh, Bernardo Bertolucci. I mean, after this, he made like 1900, The Last Emperor, The Dreamers. It, you know, it was done at a time where sexual morales and artistic morales were a lot freer. But one of the downfalls that I think we're, we're, we're starting to see now was a lot of patriarchy. Yes. Way to a lot of really shitty behavior. Like the, the censors were were gone uh, in the late '60s, and we started to get Midnight Cowboys and you know movies like that, uh, Clockwork Orange, and and then it felt very free for artists, but it was still men that were controlling these film projects mm-hmm. and you know forcing some women into situations. Like of those three, who had who had the least amount of power? Brando was in his 40s, right? Yeah, Brando's in his 40s at this point. Bernardo, I think, is in his 50s. I think somewhere around there, yeah. And she's a 19-year-old and not, not an American actor. And she's like, well, I have to do this stuff to be in this movie. And maybe this will lead to more of a career. And yeah, so, I mean, but th- there wasn't consent. So I, I maybe don't want to bog down the review with this, but this is that's why I went there first, because this is a fact about this film. And so that's where I'm, I'm looking at 
these controversial movies. The one I'm having trouble with, even though watching it this last time, I can appreciate a lot of the positives of it. If I didn't know any of this stuff and I'm just watching the film, it is quite an achievement, uh, particularly by Brando. I th the pathos and the risk and, and like where he goes throughout. And she, and she risks a lot in this performance, in her performance too. But I, I think it's the most raw I've ever seen. The closest I can think of is A Streetcar Named Desire, his performance, which was many years before when it still seemed like he was a little bit hungrier as, as an actor. And there's just from the moment beginning to end, there's such a sadness to it and even when we have the supposed happy moments the the literal last tango in paris there's just such depression in that performance and a lot of what brando brought in he had several monologues in the film they were all from his real life i mean mm -hmm. he didn't have a happy childhood and he brings that to this role so he he risked a lot more in this film but he also did some pretty horrible things that that's where i'm conflicted so i understand all of the praise that he received a little bit with uh with with bertolucci i i it's it's an odd film. It was a film of its time. There's sequences in there which I don't like as much. I'm not crazy about the subplot with the the fiance making that. Yeah, that needed to be cut out entirely. On guard, like that. If we just focused on the two their relationship even if it was a cast of two people which a lot of it is that would be that would be good enough but um so i it's like one part of me wants to really embrace this film but the other part is just so so bothered by it so well i'm going to talk about what things work and then what things don't work i guess yeah. um i love the opening credits with the francis bacon paintings i think it's a seeing them side by side and especially how distorted the male character is and he actually uses actual paintings, poses for the Marlon Brando. Uh, I think I, I think after especially the rape scene, there's Brando lying like on the floor with his legs or arms crossed. Those all come from Francis Bacon painting. And and it is a meditation on grief as well. Uh, if you're sitting down to Last Tango in Paris, you're sitting down to two and a half hours of misery. Yeah, for the life of me, I cannot figure out why Bernardo Bettolucci, the first 45 minutes or an hour, plays like a sexual thriller. If you look at the musical musical cues, it's dark and mysterious and disturbed. Like and like, it plays like a thriller. And I kind of went, "Why are we doing this? Is this?" I just felt he was going to kill. I felt like he was going to kill the girl. I mean, yeah, like he, he, he seems as creepy as you can get. I mean, yeah, yeah, like you definitely fear for Schneider's character. Like you're worried for her well-being uh for the first hour of the movie and you do and and uh paul character really comes across as a creep yeah. uh it, it, it's juxtaposition that we know that he's a very like, he's a very broken man and we kept and i kept on thinking okay he's hurt he's you know he, he's he's a raw nerve especially with, with the opening shot i love the opening shot where the train's going overhead and he's got his ears and he's like ah! What a great beginning. But I thought, why are you playing this first part as a thriller? And then it stops. And then it becomes more like a somber, tragic tale. And you know that you're getting, like, you even know from the title that Brando's not coming out of this movie a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but I can't, that was one of the questions I had is, why are you playing this? with a sense of danger. Uh, I'm messing with the audience. I, I don't know. Um, well, that's what Pauline Kales kind of alluded to. Like, she loved this movie immensely and said that yeah. this is a game, game changer. Not since the Rites of Spring has this movie, uh, it'll cause such a revolution in cinema. Uh, she wasn't right about that per se, uh, but it's... It's the movie is frustrating to me because Brando. If you want to, see, 
if you want to see what all the fuss was about with Brando, this is a shining example because he's really good in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and same with Schneider. They really played on her, her innocence a lot. Um, so and naivety too, because she's just super confident. Like I know people like this that are kind of shortly after the years they graduate from high school. They think yeah. they can take on the world and they've got it all figured out. Yeah. And she leads herself into this really strange situation and she thinks she knows how to handle it, but she is way out of her depth. Out of her depth. Um, there's there's a couple of scenes and I, and I and that's also a problem with Crash. That was one thing I forgot to talk about is there are scenes where horrible things happen and then the next scene, they're acting like nothing's really ever happened. And I know... Like, like, I can't speak to people who are victims of rape, obviously, but especially after the, like, after the butter scene, she's still very chummy with him. And I know there's mythology where victims still have such a link to their attackers, and I guess maybe that's it. But just like in Crash, there's lots of scenes where, as an audience member, you're kind of going, this is really unbelievable. Uh, especially the scene where, in Crash... They see that car accident and they get out and they're walking between the cops and the paramedics taking photos. There's no way that would happen in real life. Um, yeah, that, that, that struck quite a false note. Well, they, they see their friends are dead too and there's no, well, I guess, yeah. Well, that's because they're, they're, they're playing in different different pools. Mm-hmm. Last Tango wants to be as serious as it possibly can. It's really Bernardo shining, shining the mirror to himself both it was his fantasy wasn't it like he saw himself as the brando character and his dream girl was this maria schneider like somebody who looks like her or acts like the character in the film bernardo is both paul and the director i think his name is lee actually right what's the young boyfriend's name tom okay i think bernardo's both he's both the young filmmaker We've got a young, young filmmaker, but also Paul is the, is the older version of himself. And at one point he was talking about, he was asked, why is there so much female frontal nudity and no male nudity? And Bernardo said, well, you know, like because Paul's me and I was afraid to show his genitals and it's not about Maria. And I kind of thought, well, that's kind of the problem though, buddy. If, you know, uh-huh. I get it, you're, 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 it's, it's Paul's journey, but if you're going to lay bare everything, lay, lay, lay physical, you know, show the physicality of both male and female. And I think that's part of the problem I have with the last tango. It is, it's pretty narcissistic, pretty self-indulgent. Yeah. The, the male point of view and female. That's fine, I guess, in that sort of way. I could not stand the, the young boyfriend character. Like whenever it, it segued into there, I was like, oh God, fast forward, you fast forward. Can- Snack or something, yeah, yeah. I'd be more curious about why the Schneider character keeps on coming back to the room because she's struggling for a human connection with a character that is so we don't say names here, and he scolds her whenever she starts sharing stuff. But of course, she manipulates him and gets him to, you know, admit to certain things about him, which shows you that she's a lot smarter than she appears. But I, I don't know. I Right off the bat, when he, you know, she shows up from the train and he's got the film crew and not telling her, I thought, uh-oh, this guy's a douche. And it, and it never really changes. I would be more curious about why she's the way she is. Because she says she loves the boyfriend character, but keeps on engaging in an adulterous, carnal relationship with Paul. She keeps it in like an addiction. So what 
what in her past has led her to these kind of choices? That was a lot more intriguing. Now, maybe she's she's intellectually and sexually unfulfilled by Tom. Who knows? But we never... It's not really explored all that much. You get the sense that she's frustrated, but then when he asks her to marry her, she's all in. Yeah. Um, and that's maybe the, the beauty of youth. I don't know. But... I I could definitely understand why a lot of women would have problems with how Paul is betrayed and treats Maria as as an object, as just a hole to fill. And that gets real tiresome after a while. But it's frustrating because they're like it is a beautiful movie. I love once again getting back to the Francis Bacon paintings. Like the orange and the and the sort of de, 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 the old stained looks of the apartment. Uh, that's all Francis Bacon. And orange and purple are very hard colors to find soothing. It yes. makes it very upsetting. I think the music is great. I love the shots where you see them like there's a shot where she's looking where Schneider's looking through the mirror and it's broken and we see multiple versions of her or how fractured her character is or you know Paul's behind is sort of a, a very cloudy window we see the out there's lots of outlines of shapes we, it, much like abstract painting uh, we don't see a lot of detail and that's deliberate I love the fact that we're seeing little layers peeled away on Paul. Um, I love the scene where he visits his dead wife's body and she's got all flowers up and she he has this monologue about why, because he still doesn't quite understand. And, you know, like I've been married for 14, almost 14 years now, been with her for almost 18, and I'm still learning things about my wife, you know? It, 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 we never really truly know someone's heart and mind, even after we've known them for a while. And that's something that I think Last Tango does explore, or Crash even does explore. But I don't know. Like I said, I had a hard time with how Paul treated Jean. Uh, and so when she turns the tables and she does her controversial move where she's trying to essentially get away with murder... <laughs> or is it murder? Um, she's, you know, she's formulating this plan saying that, you know, I don't know this guy. You know, he came in and tried to rape me. Was Paul going to rape her? I don't think so. But he'd already had it. it like I said, it, it's, it got upsetting. It's not, it's another really thoroughly unhappy movie, but yeah. an interesting one to talk yeah. about. Pretentious. Um, Pretentious. I, I would, I would be curious if, if the roles were reversed. I would, I would love to see an adult. Well, Damage does that though, and that's one of the reason why I like Damage so much. I was going to mention another one, which received some comparisons, was Monsters Ball. And at the time, some people, because that was, I mean, that was the role for Halle Berry. Some people compared Halle Berry's performance to Brando's in this. Much better female character mm -hmm. than in Last Tango. But again, the grief and the unhappiness mm -hmm. with these two characters who connect with each other, essentially like a, a racist and a black woman. And so, yeah. yeah. So I could say I... I admire the artistry and and a lot of the technical aspects of this film. I just and I'm I'm a little bit of a method guy. I like method actors. I've tried when I, I haven't done a lot of acting the last few years. I've moved a little bit more. I, I feel better when I've approached things from the method standpoint. Mm -hmm. But this is like over the line. And and unfortunately it 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 impacts Taking a look at this list of films, it, it does impact the number of points I'm, I'm probably going to give Last Tango in Paris, even though uh, I think we've talked about that there's interesting stuff to see, and it is probably worth watching just so you know kind of what happened. But I don't, again, I've 
trouble figuring out who I would recommend this movie to. Well, people who enjoy, like you and I, the film film auteurs or people that love film as an art piece, I, I recommend this film. You know, you'd have to put some asterisks on it and say, look, there's there's this particular scene that was once celebrated and now it's not. Um, I'd be really curious to see it from a female's lens if they if they had switched the roles. There's a little scene film called Bliss uh, with Craig Sheffer and Cheryl Lee and Terrence Stamp that I think actually does a better job of this, where the roles are reversed. I don't know if you've ever heard of this at all. I haven't seen it. No, it sounds interesting. I like those actors. It's a, especially for a, an American filmmaker, because I, I do think American filmmakers have this sense of Puritan thought in it where sex is this scandalous thing, which is funny because most humans are very much sexual beings, but we, we don't want to show or talk about this. But Bliss sort of examines uh, the sexual relationship between a very damaged woman and a naive man and how they go to see this therapist, the sex therapist played by the brilliant Terrence Stamp and secrets are revealed. Mm -hmm. That to me is a lot more intelligent examination of grief and trauma and how it's explored through sexuality. And that's kind of what Last Tango was doing. Whether you can see it was successful or not remains to be seen. Positive review, I think, on the movie. Not I'm not I'm not doing flips over this one, but positive review, but really, really do not appreciate what was done in that fairly famous and before this even happened, it was a controversial scene. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's just now being called out for, for what it is, which you're seeing a criminal act on screen. And if Brando were alive today and in you know in his artistic prime, dude be would be so canceled. <laughs> well, he probably would have been facing some charges. Yes, he would have. Joining Bill Cosby and the others. I always felt that the R version that was released was not the real version of the film. Natural Born Killers, the director's cut, now on DVD. Unedited. You tell Mickey Mallory Knox did it, all right? Uncensored. The thing lives in here. Uncut. Welcome to hell. In the superior DVD format, you'll get the original director's cut, plus an additional 60 minutes of footage. Including deleted scenes with Ashley Judd and Dennis Leary and featuring Oliver Stone's explosive alternate ending. The DVD gives you a raw new look behind the camera, face to face with the cast and crew. Values are just about money. Police have become corrupt. The media is corrupt. A candid interview with Oliver Stone. Snatch Point Kills comes from a very emotional moment in time. I was in that emotion of murder, death, uh, violence, the end of American society. I let it go. I didn't censor myself at all. Natural Born Killers, the director's cut. Unedited. Uncensored. Uncompromising. The world's coming to an end, Mal. Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, Tommy Lee Jones, and Robert Downey Jr. I'm a natural born killer. Natural Born Killers, the director's cut. Own it on DVD.
we didn't talk as much about how we met years ago, but yeah. um, we met working at Rainbow Cinemas. I was in uh, still in grade 12, and uh, you're a few years older than me. You were in university, and then we were in the drama department uh, together for several years. And for me, I was like this this puppy running in a circle type of thing. And I was finding somebody who loved movies as much as I did. And I know for a fact, I talked your ear off about movies a yeah. lot during those years. Well, um, I'm guilty of that as well, Jason. So, And oh. at, at the time, and I, I've said this because I've reviewed recently Wall Street, uh, as well as the director's cut version of JFK, that at the time you met me, Oliver Stone was my favorite filmmaker. Yeah. And I would say if what Oliver Stone did in the 80s and 90s had held up into this century, he might have been a contender for Scorsese, but it has been, I bet I'm using one of Larry's terms here, diminishing returns pretty much since, I might argue, since Nixon. And But at the time Natural Born Killers came out, I was too young to see it in, in the theater. And when it came out on home video, every single, I, I was just constantly bugging my dad, can I rent it? Can I rent it? No, 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 no. Finally, at the end of the school year, kind of this time of year, the last day of school, as a reward, I was allowed to watch Natural Born Killers. That was the theatrical cut. Since then, I have I have the theatrical cut, but I also have this director's cut, which Stone does this with a lot of his movies where he has a director's cut, and that's the version he wants people to remember and release. With JFK, I had problems with that. I liked the theatrical cut more than the director's cut. With Natural Born Killers, I kind of get it. I think, you know, if a bad analogy for this particular film, but if Gun was to my head, which one would I choose? I'd probably go with the director's cut. The controversy around this one, it's not about religion and not about sex, even though there is kind of a violent scene, kind of rape murder scene that happens uh, partway through the film. But the controversy is around copycat killings that happened afterwards with obviously some people that did not get Oliver Stone's purpose in making this movie. Yeah. And thought that's are cool, so let's be cool like them and do what they did, and let's you know take acid and then go murder a bunch of people. That's what he was afraid of or talking about. That yeah, that's very much what he was afraid of is the media's celebration of serial killers, and it focuses on this couple, Mickey and Mallory Knox, who both have very, very bad childhoods and happen to meet each other and they just go on a kill crazy rampage before they eventually get caught. Mickey's played by Woody Harrelson. Mallory's played by Juliette Lewis, who is an actor I absolutely love. So I, I may be in a different place with you on this because I, I, I recently, in my attempt to get my vampire episode out, reviewed From Dusk Till Dawn. And it shows to me the range that Juliette Lewis, sometimes she's not given credit for the range that she has because that character is quite different than Mallory. But along here is quite a, quite a good cast. Robert Downey Jr. is a standout. He plays this Australian kind of Geraldo Rivera figure who is in charge of this American Maniac, which is a show that profiles serial killers and celebrates them, makes them seem like heroes almost, so he yeah. can get ratings and interviews them. And arranges after uh, after Mickey's been caught to do a live interview in the prison after the Super Bowl. We also have Tommy Lee Jones in one of his most colorful cartoonish performances as the warden in this prison. And, and then also uh, with that, we, we also have to mention this detective Jack Scagnetti, played by Tom Sy 
Sizemore, who's hunting down Mickey and Mallory, and he has a less than his less than subtle crush on Mallory. Well, he wants and, to be them. Sorry, all of the people want to be Mallory and Mickey and Mallory Knox, essentially. Mass murdering is wrong, yo. But if I was a mass murder, I'd be Mickey and Mallory Knox. And so Stone had established with his, at that time, no longer, but at the time, regular director of photography, Robert Richardson, who I think is the best in the business. This very visceral style, that would be something we talk about with this, because this was not a pleasant shoot for uh, for Richardson at all. No. Um, but vi very visceral. Wife, eh? Sorry? You heard the story about his wife, eh? Yeah. She gave him an ultimatum. You do this when we get divorced. Yeah. He nearly lost his marriage. He had yeah. family members. He did lose his marriage. Yep. She, okay. she I, thought they, I thought they almost, you know, so he did lose his marriage over this. Wow. And then there were injuries on set to all kinds of people. It wasn't the safest set for sure. But this has something like, I, I don't know, like 44 different ways to get a shot. There's animation. There's black and white. There's grainy. Uh, there's the use of the green color. It all has a purpose. Like sometimes people think Stone's just doing this just to be flashy. But all of this has a purpose. And well, it's... What was the purpose? Well... When we're seeing the black and white photography, and he uses this in Nixon, and he uses this a uh, little bit on Born on the Fourth of July, a lot in JFK, we're seeing the thoughts of this character and the perception that this character has. So when we see the waitress at the very beginning of the film who's taking Mickey's order, we're seeing what they think the waitress is actually saying to him as opposed to what's really happening. So what's happening in color is literally what's happening, but their minds are so messed up. Whenever there's some like something really traumatic that starts to happen, green shows up. So the key lime pie, uh, the green lighting at the at the drugstore just before they get caught. Something big happens, and it's and it's to reflect what's going on for uh, for 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 Mickey at that particular time. It's a controversial film. We've talked about it over the years about some mixed messages that perhaps Stone he he had this vision of what it would be, but he kind of does some things to hamper that but i'm still an enormous fan of natural born killers and this particular era in uh in stone's career where he was really pushing the boundaries and i think the reason they called it like such a controversial film is because jfk came before this and born on the fourth of july and platoon and he was wrote the screenplay for scarface he he was showing the american society at that time for what it actually was not what they wanted it to be and people didn't like that and there was more negativity directed to this film than pulp fiction mm -hmm. the other piece i should mention is that quentin tarantino wrote the original screenplay for this he gets a story credit because stone then bought it up and rewrote it and did his own thing with it because originally it was going to be Tarantino and his video store buddy making the film and eventually Stone kind of kicked Tarantino off the project. I heard it was to the point that there were actors that Tarantino said if you get involved with Natural Born Killers you'll never work in my films again. Said that to Steve Buscemi apparently and uh, to Michael Madsen who were interested in being in the project. Mm -hmm. So anyway all that to say it is a controversial movie. It is not for everybody. This director's cut, I, I would say, amps up the violence. There's more of the prison. Spoilers here already, but with Tommy Lee Jones as the warden, in the theatrical cut, 
we get the idea that because he's been so focused on Mickey and Mallory, he hasn't paid attention to this giant riot that's happening and how unpopular he is as a warden. And we just see the prisoners come in and attack him and we see nothing more. In the director's cut, we actually see his he gets decapitated and his head is on a pike. Skagnetti character gets a prostitute who looks a little bit like Mallory and has violent sex with her and ends up killing her and in that one we we have more shots of the sex and the basically the rape that happens and the violence and, and that's intensified and there's a few other shots which are prolonged and a little bit more uh, a little bit more intense um, I guess and so there's a lot that Stone shot there's sequences which are really interesting that never made either cut of the film people like Dennis Leary did a, a little monologue in it Ashley Judd was in the the courtroom sequence which they cut down significantly I really like this movie I it's it's visceral and it's um I'm going on I'm gushing about it too much but I'm I'm a big fan of natural born killers so now I need some perspective from you Lee all right so what's what's your definition of satire and what's your definition of farce satire is a social statement where something gets exaggerated sometimes comedically but not always comedically to make a point about society in the time we're living in. Okay, contemporary politics and issues, sure. Farce. Farce to me is where you just take a situation and you exaggerate it and it, it, it no longer becomes real, but it's missing the, the social commentary piece. Okay. Oh. For entertainment in, in many ways. Okay, okay. Yeah. So then by that definition, I would consider Natural Born Killers a satire, not, okay. not a farce. So. Okay. Did you find the film funny though? Well, I don't think satire has to be funny. There are some things which are amusing, but I'm, I wasn't laughing out loud. I was more like laughing at the audacity of, of it, like the whole craziness of the sitcom sequence where Rodney Dangerfield plays Mallory's father and who he's you know molesting molesting and we get the canned laughter from the sitcoms of the 1980s and 1990s and stones like very in your face with like this is stopping us from thinking watching this television and, and laughing at a, along with a laugh track at things which are not really all that funny and we're getting the messages of what an american family should be from this as opposed to what's actually happening in real families look do you think it should be funny or well yeah, and it's not. Look, Oliver Stone is a very talented filmmaker. Uh, I, I consider JFK probably one of the best American films of the past 30 years. There are great fictitious leaps in it. There are characters that are, you know, three people melded into one. But that film really changed the zeitgeist, and it really opened up the possibility that one of the greatest murders of the 21st century, which is still unsolved, it... This one really opened up to the public about the grassy knoll and Oswald didn't do it. We were sold a bill of goods. And it's it's a great murder mystery. So I will defend Stone in relation to JFK. I will defend Stone in relation to Platoon, Wall Street, where a natural born killers as a t technical achievement, it's brilliant. It took like 11 months just to edit this movie in, in yeah. production. It actually got postponed from its original date. Uh, the fact that it goes from animation to black and white to grainy 70 millimeter, sort of saturated color film, but still great. It's the kind of movie that you could turn the volume off and watch and just watch the amazing aesthetic on display. So from a technical filmmaking achievement, I think the film is masterful. 
It was copied afterwards. Like yeah. TV shows and movies after it, movies like Domino and things like that, I think took a lot from this. Oliver Stone owes a big thank you to Stanley Kubrick, though, because that film's a gigantic homage to Clockwork Orange. As a satire, I think it fails. It is so over the top. And I guess I like my satires with a little more subtlety, I guess. You take a film like Blazing Saddles, which is really not that subtle, but, and, it, and it's totally taking the piss out of those racist Westerns from the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s and whatnot. That's successful. I kind of see it as a parody. Hmm? I see Blazing Saddles as a parody. I think it's a sad. I, I, I do agree that it has satirical moments. Yeah. But uh, okay, let, 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 to me, one of the best satires of the 1990s was Robert Altman's The Player. Yeah. But I'm no, not laughing my way through that movie. I laughed. I laughed at The Player. Yeah. I, I, I've watched it lots and I, I, I love The Player. Someday I'm going to review it on this, this show, but I love The Player, but I, I don't find myself laughing at it. Well, I chuckle and it's like, hey, hey, hey. Um, yeah. Such an attack on the senses that I don't think it gives you time. And when you finally sort of get what Stone has been hammering and hammering and hammering over your head, there's, I got, at least I got the sense, and Parsons has talked about this, and that's the, it's the problem with funny games as well, is he's pointing the finger at you going, see, see, you secretly enjoy this, you fuck. Years just as dirty as the other people. And Stone talked about how, you know, before Natural Born Killers, his movies dealt, especially with the violence, there was a sense of realism. Mm -hmm. So here he goes, he, he takes what he thinks is satire and makes caricatures. Like, the, once again, the characters aren't deep, they're all essentially walking it's Mickey Malley, Stagnetti, Tommy Lee Jones. Like, they're not, yeah, or, or even the Robert Downey Jr. character. Like, in Quentin Tarantino's script. His hypocrisy is interesting. He's got the two sides of, you know, his media face and he's like the conservative moral, you know, what you did was wrong. You murdered. But then he, I would never murder anybody. And then 20 minutes later, he's so excited to shoot the gun and and and, and try to kill the, the, the guards. I mean, I think there's a lot to that character, even though you're you're right there. I mean, everything is, is super big, but... What to me the difference is I don't think natural born killers lies to us. What like many games does. Stone is guilty of this. He did make a movie once where a whole series of characters die. It's like, oh haha, ha, just kidding. And that's where I got really pissed off because I it was a movie Savages where I thought he was gonna get back to form as a filmmaker, and then they have the sequence like that, and that's that made me a lot more mad than anything in Natural Born Killers. Like, because I, I, I hate both versions of Funny Games. I mean, like, hate, hate. I, you know, I sometimes am hyperbolic when I do these reviews, but genuinely, and I, and I own one of the versions, like, that'll be part of the show someday, but I, here, I don't think at any point that Stone was lying to us. He's not lying to us, but he's not subtle. But it's not a subtle time. It's it's a time of sit in front of the television and watch, you know, these fake journalists. And we still are, are stuck with that even more so now with news as entertainment uh, and the celebration of uh, really horrible people. That, you know, it, it's gotten worse. And I think Stone was onto something with this movie. You know, I, I mean, they're, they're trying to be careful when these masks 
killings happen now to mention the victims instead of celebrating the the shooter or the killer but i still think it, we're, we're living in this time and definitely in the 90s all of this all of this pop culture stuff was happening so i think of, of its time it made perfect sense that he he made it this way yeah, if he had back a little bit i'm not sure that i i it would have been as a effective do you remember the film Mad City? Yes. With Dustin Hoffman and John Travolta. I caught this. A of a network type of a thing almost more than. It's you know. exploring the same themes and it didn't have to be as nasty. Like, it's not the violence that makes me kind of go, Ugh. it's the ugliness. Like the I love Mallory thing. Like a lot of people point to that saying, you know, it's brilliant. And that, it, like, it's so ugly. And and like and I, I get what he's going for with the laugh track. Like we're supposed to like ha ha ha, but it's so exhausting that by the end, and especially because I for me I do get the sense that he's pointing the finger right in your face. And I get it, Oliver. I get it. You know, I, I know what you're going for. I got it in the opening minutes, but you know, at, at the two hour mark, I, I you know I have a flag. So as a satire, I think it kind of fails. As a technical achievement, like. Once again, there's I don't think there's the film quite like it. The cinematographer deserves a big pat on the back. I can't believe he went ahead and did it when his wife said, you make this and I'm leaving you, which he did. The editing's amazing too. I mean, it's oh, a well edited yeah. film. It's all yeah. but I look at great satire, whether it's Gulliver's Travels or <laughs> In the Loop, yeah. where, or even uh, The Death of Stalin. Th those to me... Well, even Fight Club has got huge satirical elements. And there's a film that, once again, throws a lot in your face and does, but at least it gives you moments to breathe where it's such a, an attack on the senses. And I think Stone thinks he's a lot smarter than he actually is when it comes to this. I get the whole doom and gloom, apathetic viewpoint. You know, like you and I are both, you know, generate, are we generation, what are we, generation Y or X? We're X. X. Yeah, I mean, we're known as a generation that was pretty apathetic, unlike this generation. We, we, we kind of, you know, threw our hands and went, fuck it. But I, I, I look at a film like, you know, Mad City. I think it's called Mad City. Yeah, it is, yeah. Where it was a little more successful in, in talking about how the media is in love with sensationalism and will throw its its morality out the window just to get that perfect story and makes the Travolta character a tragic hero where... I didn't find any of Natural Born Killers funny. Uh, I found it, it's a world lacking empathy. And we're, and I think we are in that right now. Like, you know, as a, as a elementary art teacher, one of the things I do teach is to be empathetic. Mm -hmm. I never thought I'd live in a world where that has to be taught. So yeah, you, you can say that Stone was on to something, but bring it back, Oliver, just a little bit. So that's why I think as a satire, it's not quite successful. Yeah. Um, it's so over the top and it, and it hammers away that the humor is gone and we get it all over. <laughs> well, like, uh, so one of the things though is why is it that until you mentioned Mad City, I haven't thought about that movie in 20 some years, mm -hmm. but Natural Born Killers, I comes to mind a lot. Like I, I remember that that one. Maybe it's a weakness in myself that I remember something that's that in your face. 
If I take your point, I, I would say, and I'm going to mention two movies which I feel are better movies than Natural Born Killers here, that I would consider satires, but again, I'm not laughing that much at them, but I still think they're amazing satires. Network from 1976, which is an enormous indictment of, of the media, mm-hmm. much like Stone would appreciate that. And a, a film I think that both Tarantino and Stone, they didn't agree on a whole lot with this project, but they both were somewhat inspired by Bonnie and Clyde. Again, mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde, not a terribly funny film, but it is a satire that makes a point about how society worked at that time. And yeah, they were bank robbers and and there's some people died and that kind of thing. But, you know, they were kind of a reflection of the world they were living in at the time. Mm-hmm. And this is, that's depression era. And this is the 1990s. And this is what has been created is a, a culture that celebrates bad behavior. And I yeah. think only successful in that way. It's just not something that a lot of people want to to see, I guess. He just goes for it. And I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's nonstop. It's, I, I was watching it again. And my sister was watching with me and she said, maybe I saw this back then. And I'm not sure, but she said, I don't remember it being as, as wild as this, but it yeah. is, yeah, it is a very wild film. So anyway, I, I think we're in different places with it for sure. And uh, I certainly appreciate your, the points you're making. Sorry, I'm just I'm the director's cut more than the theatrical cut or is it all the same? It's all the same to me. Um, I know with Tarantino's version, the Robert Downey Jr. character was the main focus, um, and, as well as the Scagnetti character. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Tarantino had a problem with, because uh, Mickey and Mallory, you only saw them briefly. So the focus changed when Stone came on board to Mickey and Mallory. And so I'm often left wondering what would happen if Tarantino's version came out, where the focus was on, what's Downey's character's name again? Robert Downey Jr.'s. Wayne Gale. Yeah, Wayne Gale. If you're going to hammer away at the media's infatuation with killers in this case i would be more intrigued with the gales character and his fall from grace i mean we see it in the movie but having the kill you know mickey and mallory as secondary characters i think would have been the smarter play and even uh, having more on Skegnetity and and his obsession and his fall from grace would have had the point would have i think shown the point better than instead of focusing on Mickey and Mallory. That's that's kind of where I fall a little bit. And that's where I think kind of as a satire, Killers fails for me. I think Tarantino made his over-the-top movie, but it was a genre film, Kill Bill. And so I'm not sure it was trying to say anything deeper than, and Stone was trying to go for something deeper than, than say, Kill Bill. But yeah, I, I, I obviously like it a lot more than you do. And that's, that's perfectly fine. No, it's fine. Like it's... It's just frustrating because you can tell that Stone is a very, very talented filmmaker and we need more people like him. And it's not that I hate natural born killers. I, 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 like I said, technically it's, it's masterful. Uh, owes a lot to Clockwork Orange because he, he's playing with the whole notion of showing you something horrific, but having the music and even, you know, the lighting showing something different and you're desensitized to it. Like in Clockwork Orange, the whole singing in the rain as, you know, he rapes the other woman, you're seeing something horrific, but at the same time, you're kind of giggling a little bit. And then you're like, oh, why should I be laughing at this? Yeah. Where Joan is just not subtle with it. Going back to your review of Fight Club on Rank and Review. Yeah. That was kind of the last time that 20th Century Fox released something that had some balls to it, I think was the, the, the terminology you used. 
Yeah. And looking at, I think Warner Brothers takes more risks for yes. studio than, than others. But this was a, you know, this was quite a ballsy move to release this film and to support this movie, even though they didn't originally support the director's cut. They came around to it. But. Yeah, and I could. I, Woody Harrelson's been in a lot of movies, man. I, I forgot he, how, how long his career has been, all the way from Cheers to to now. Dude's been in a lot of movies. This was a real departure from Cheers. Like most people knew him, maybe they saw White Men Can't Jump, but yeah. this was quite a jump from you know the Woody character character from Cheers to uh, to this role. So I really like the acting. We didn't talk about the acting a whole lot. Downey Jr. is amazing. I really like Juliette Lewis. Harrelson is solid, but I, I think we can agree on the technical merits and the acting and everything. It's yeah. just the message of the film is where we're parting ways. The, the, the technical accents are brilliant. I think they're caricatures. I, I think that they are they, they are service to the narrative, which is, I mean, they're good for what they're being asked. I, I'd i be more interested in, in, in the Gale character and see what made him tick and what made him fall. Plus Downey Jr. is such an interesting actor. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope, the only hope, the exorcist. Okay, so if I remember correctly, when I listened to the rank and review episode of the best horror movies of the 70s, you and Larry, uh, I think you both agreed that Jaws and The Exorcist were the two best horror movies of the 70s, but Larry went with The Exorcist and you went with Jaws. Do I have that right? Uh, for me, I, I think the 70s, my bias is I think the 70s were the best decade for horror. And I, The Exorcist to me is the best horror movie from that decade. Therefore, The Exorcist is my favorite horror movie. And it's somehow, it's been parodied so much. And there's some bad sequels. There's some better sequels out there. But it, it still disturbs me. I, I've, I've talked about with some other people who aren't phased in the least by it. But... It, it really bothers me every time I see it. And I, I think it's a very effective film. So I, I feel like I'm gushing over all of these movies. But The Exorcist uh, is, is a movie I really, really love. But, you know, I, I 
I have trouble sleeping a little bit more after I've seen it. Great performances, three in particular that I would focus on. Obviously, everybody remembers Linda Blair, and I think it's better than, than, it's just a great performance. It's not just a great performance by a child actor. I think she's asked to do some very, very difficult stuff that when they're doing the medical test to figure out what's happening to her, that like that's that's not a scene where she's uh, spewing out uh, vomit or any of that stuff. It's just really, really uncomfortable watching this little girl in this position and and she's reacting as realistically as i would expect anybody of that age to to react and it just gets better and better ellen burston who is a one of the great actors of all time she centers the movie really well i think lost in all this is uh jason miller's performance as the the one priest who who starts to help and starts to believe the Ellen Burstyn character and is there. He's not an exorcist. They have to call him Max von Sydow, but he's there through all this and he's going through the grief of losing his mother and he's having his own kind of religious doubts and weaknesses at that time. I, that's an exceptional performance and I, I would have liked to have seen him win the Academy Award for it. So, enormous fan of the exorcist and I I, I know you, you like it quite a bit. I so And a lot of people have talked about this one, so I don't know what, what more we say about it but it's uh yeah well controversial it was so in your face in the religious you know religious groups did not like this movie and did not like it it was mentioned by the by the by the vatican they were they were behind it so yeah yeah they and william peter blatty i think is a catholic he wrote the book he wrote the screenplay and he was trying to do as you know as good a job with uh, you know the theology behind it and, and, and everything as, as he can. Have you ever tried to listen to his commentary track? No, no. Um, like like he goes pretty deep. Like it almost unfortunately it gets a little bit dry after a while. But yeah, but that's bloody though. Yeah. But then you you understand the amount of thought and detail he put into the book and and uh, writing the screenplay and so and then he was kind of like the good sequel. He was behind. He wrote and directed The Exorcist Three, which I. I like, I might like more than you do, but uh, I, I like quite a bit as well. Yeah. But it was, a, no doubt it was a controversial film. So, um, what can you say about The Exorcist that hasn't already been said? Mm-hmm. Um, I think what makes the movie successful is that both Blatty and Friedkin early on realized that they weren't making a horror film per se. They were making what was called a passion play. You know what passion plays are? Yeah. Yeah. You know, making sort of uh, middle English style storytelling about. Faith that are pretty in your face and aggressive, examining themes that are hard to swallow. And they knew that if they were going to talk about the love of God and the love of faith, that they were going to have to show the other half and don't hold back on it. And that's what ultimately I think what makes Exorcist so successful is that you've got really four, once again, traumatized human beings mm-hmm. that are find their salvation by the end, especially um, Father Karras, who has the most intriguing arc out of everyone out of out of the four characters and I'm talking about the Ellen Bernstein character I'm talking about Father Marin and obviously Reagan it's interesting I once again one of those the excess is a film that I see at least once every decade I've seen a lot of it in the past 10 years when I first saw it I thought it was Reagan's story then I saw it in my 20s again a couple of times and thought it was Father Karras's story seeing it now it's 
I gravitate towards more Father Marin, played by Matt Bonsaito, and yeah. watching him realized how good he is, especially with the old age makeup. To see the exhausted face he has when he realized that he has to fight Pazuzu again at the beginning, and the realization that he's going to die when he when he goes back into the room, he knows that the, this is the, his last hour and that he's not coming out of that room alive. And to see the amount of love that he has for God's creatures, especially Reagan and Father Damien, when he sends them out and Damien's defeated, Karis has such love and respect and pity because he knows that Damien has lost his faith and that and 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 Pazuzu is really working that for him. He is such a man of love, and to try and aspire to a person like that, I think I would like to be Father Karis to reach that point where he has no problem sacrificing himself for for his faith, for his love of humanity. Because what the demon is trying to do is to show humans as wrong, primal, animalistic, not worthy of God's love. Like that's one of the questions, why this girl? She was so innocent and yet has been violated and invaded and is, and if not helped, will go to hell for no apparent reason. So the fact that Father Karras ultimately sacrifices himself, both do technically, but he knows that he's not going to physically win this fight. And it's the hopes that Father Damien, when he comes in and sees him dead, that he'll react the right way, which he does, because he knows that Pazuzu is going to win this unless Father Damien makes that sacrifice. So I, I gravitate towards more Max von Sydow's performance this time around, because mm -hmm. all three of their stories are so engaging. And even what's the other priest that is Father Damien's friend and 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 Kinderman? I know Kinderman has a greater uh, greater part both in the book. Uh, he got he kind of gets shortchanged, although he. he gets more in the director's cut which i kind of agree is the is the stronger movie i love all the scenes put in especially the scene right after the two the two priests are on the steps and they've just kind of failed with the first round of exorcism and mm -hmm. damien's asking why why this girl and father care or um Saito's characters yeah. are marin marin oh, what you know what the devil is trying what Pazuzu is trying to do and that's the heart of the movie and I kind of wish they put it in there I know William Peter Blatty didn't speak with, didn't speak with Friedkin long after long after the movie because he had to cut that scene and for um, Blatty that's what the exorcist is about is explaining their their love of faith I, I mean it was controversial because of the sexual violence and just the sheer depravity that is shown in the film to this day I'm surprised it didn't get an X rating um, especially with the genital mutilation scene but it's, it's worse in the book i believe it i yeah. believe it. but like listening to friedkin's commentary because i watched how i watched it this time was with friedkin's commentary you had to put those stuff in if if, if you're showing what a demon can do to a human being and won't let go you gotta go for broke yeah. um, so as horrifying as the exorcist is it's a very beautiful movie about faith much mm -hmm. like last temptation is you know those two films talk about the struggle for divinity um and to me that's that's the power of the exorcist and i think that's one of the reasons why i connected with so many people was it showing you know to believe in faith un like uncontrollably is you have to give yourself over to god's love you may question it it's human to question it but ultimately decide on the side of good you have to sacrifice and you have to do it for love and that's what father Marin, both father damien and father karis and father Marin do um and i just i find them so powerful but everyone's everyone's top-notch man like ellen bernstein 
seen her character arc is amazing. <laughs> well, as as his parent, like she's the actor and everything, but there's that whole fame part is connected to it, which is a problem in some ways when because she doesn't have she's trying to have privacy with this this issue, mm-hmm. but she can't get answers. Like there's that scene, great scene where she screams at all the doctors, yeah. and it makes perfect sense. It, it's up there with Shirley MacLaine yeah. screaming at the the nurses to for in terms of endearment. I mean, it's yeah. got that kind of power. You know, it's always interesting to me that she won for Alice doesn't live here anymore, but didn't win for, for the exorcist. But you know, that's just how they, she also didn't win for Requiem for a dream, which is a, which oh. is a big thing. So yeah. Um, you mean- yeah. And that's a method actor too, but a professional method actor. It's interesting though that to me the Catholic Church embraced one of these movies, but didn't embrace Temptation of Last Temptation of Christ. And I guess it's just uh, because they were consulted and they were in on on this, they were maybe a little bit more willing to well embrace. Last, last Temptation in a roundabout way is criticizing the old view of Jesus. So I, I could sort of see why they would be upset with this, where this film is very pro-Catholic church pro-Catholicism. Of course they would embrace it. And I mean, they're talking about something that's not performed a whole lot. You know, it happens pretty rarely, but it's very raw, raw Catholicism. I'm, I'm not sure that Scorsese was anti-Catholicism necessarily. No, 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 not at all. It, 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 both are, are both, well, I, I know Freakin's now agnostic. He's admitted as such now. He's <laughs> changed. But at the time, he was a he was a devout Catholic and Blatty, I think, died very much a Catholic. Both were the right people for this movie here here's here's something just because years ago i i I watched this movie with my my dad or at least the tail end of it my dad saw right and i know what what blatty wanted out of it uh and i'm just wanted to get your take on this at the end do you think the devil has won or has the devil lost oh clearly lost clearly Mm -hmm. lost it it, it required the human sacrifice of father karis but for the devil to win he would have had to take reagan down to hell and uh ultimately love sacrifices itself so good can triumph you know pazuzu goes into the void and only you know as we find out through exorcist 3 does he get a second chance to punish father karis and also kinderman so yeah oh no it's i hesitate to say a happy ending it's the right ending and good does triumph over evil yeah i I guess as far as the the little girl Mm -hmm. uh, but karis gets possessed and then dies Mm mm-hmm the loss of a life and it's not like the, the devil is dead or stopped mm-hmm. that could still go and possess somebody else after this this wasn't the end of so that, that was the debate i got into because my dad was like no no this was this was not this, this was not a win or, or anything in the end but i mean yeah it's better than the linda blair character you know being sent down to hell or dying or you know that kind of thing but, yeah well, I, I mean, Friedkin talks about that as well, and he says, look, you're open to your interpretation, but both how Blatty and I saw it was that ultimately good does triumph over evil. Uh, the other thing I like about it that I know modern horror movie audiences might not is it's a slow burn. But yeah. I like how they take the time to build the characters there's just a real creepy atmosphere and they go into the backstory of secondary characters. There's the whole business of the, um, of the first victim, the guy who gets drunk at that, that party. Uh, and then his body, uh, they, they find his body and like all, all that is built up beautifully before we get to the flashy parts. 
I don't think horror movies are doing that anymore. There's there's a few here and there where 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 they're they're taking their time, but a lot of them are not getting the attention that The Exorcist got. I just had an unsettling feeling from beginning to end the fir- first time I watched it, and I, I still get it. But you're right. There's something diff- different you appreciate every time you watch this, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned um, Max von Sydow because he seems like we've eternally seen him as an old man, but he wasn't actually that old when maybe close to our age when he played that role so i mean uh he, he does a terrific job in that role too i think the other roles are maybe just a little bit flashier and in, in some ways and that's i cling to the miller role for example uh, look you know. i i get it like all three of the other performances are way like their arcs are way i wouldn't say way more dramatic but they react in a more reactionary kind of way i just th- this the two things i got out of this viewing a lot more of the little easter eggs that are planted throughout the movie with regan's artwork and pictures on the wall but also just the love that Marin has for people for strangers really you know even when he says goodbye in iraq to the you know that one guy at the museum he hugs him knowing that this is probably the last time i'm going to see it so it's the little details that saito does that this is we're seeing one aspect of Marin's tale we see more of it as the exorcist films go along whether it's successfully or not successfully i mean exorcist 2 is a steaming pile of horsey um but and i don't I, hate it as much as you and larry do but i i very misdirected and too much the, 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 well, the actors i like in there but yeah uh, no, it, let's just forget about it and go straight to three, kind of. Well, and how do you out vomit The Exorcist? Because like, if you're going to make a sequel, you're going to have to try something new and kind of be really shocking, which Exorcist 2 wasn't. And is there an exorcism in Exorcist 2? I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah, yeah. Very, very hallucinatory if if there was one. So, yeah, yeah perfect. Yeah, I, I, I love The Exorcist and... It's, and I think you do too, so. No, it's a classic for a reason. What's the big mystery? Bill, I have seen one or two things in my life. Never anything like this. You know there is no way on earth that you're going to leave here tonight without taking me with you. They did a bad, bad thing. 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 You ever love someone so much you thought your little heart was going to break into? I didn't think so. You ever try with all your heart and soul to get your lover back to you? Come on, old soul. You ever pray with all your heart and soul just to watch you walk away? One of the things that maybe is controversial in a backwards way with Eyes Wide Shut is the fact that it was marketed as a very, very intense sexual thriller and when it came out people did not take it that way it was almost they thought it was gonna be a movie which is gonna be a lot of scenes of nicole kidman and tom cruise who were married at the time having graphic sex and that's what they thought the movie was gonna be and when it was a more in my opinion thoughtful look at sexual jealousy within a marriage and it took its time and went took us on a journey as kubrick often would with his films 
some people got disappointed. So it started off as the number one movie in, I think, North America when it was released. And then the box office kind of went sideways. So it has its critics, but it also has its champions. Mm -hmm. uh, Martin Scorsese, who we talked about earlier, listed it as one of the 10 best movies of the 1990s. Janet Maslin, when she was retiring at the end of 1999 from uh, movie film criticism with the New York Times, put it on her top 10 list as well. I, I can't describe why this is, but I went to see it on the very first day mm -hmm. that I could, yeah. and I was bothered by it. Like, yeah. almost on the level of the first time I saw The Exorcist. That's how much I was bothered by it, because there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. At the end, there's a lot of questions about, we saw what we think we understood happened, but can we believe what's being told? With a 2020 audience now, uh, apparently there's a real move at looking at this film through the lens of, was this about kind of a Jeffrey Epstein type of a world, where insanely rich people would bring women in and have orgies and within that there were people that were you know traumatized and, and damaged forever so there's all of that and then there's some stuff that I kind of still to this day wonder about. And to me, the most intriguing performance in the film is Nicole Kidman's. So let me just go back to plot a little bit. So uh, we have this, you know, uh, in New York, very affluent couple, a doctor played by Tom Cruise and his stay-at-home wife uh, named Alice, played by Nicole Kidman. She homeschools their, their daughter. And they go to a Christmas party at one of his patient's houses, the patient played by the great, late, great Sidney Pollock. And then this leads to them making love. Mm -hmm. The ne next night, uh, they both get stoned and they have this conversation which goes from uh, being a little thing into quite an enormous fight about saying that men do not think the way that women do and don't get jealous in the same way. And then Nicole Kidman drops this bombshell on Cruz about this fantasy she had years ago when they were on this vacation during the happiest time in their marriage mm -hmm. about this really attractive young man that she saw that she would have given up her entire life for if he yeah. had said, you know, come with me. And then this bothers him and then he's called away and then he goes on a rather dark journey meeting all kinds of characters which leads him to the most famous sequence, this, this orgy. And then the next day, he goes back on a similar journey, and we see Kubrick do this with Barry Lyndon, with A Clockwork Orange, a little bit with 2001 A Space Odyssey as well, where through these this different lens, he's able to see what is actually happening with this journey that he has been on. And I think it's a very effective film. Cruise, I think, does a good job of centering it. Some people don't like Tom Cruise in this movie. Kidman's outstanding, plus really interesting kind of cameos and performances by actors like Alan Cumming, for example, shows up as uh, late in the film as a guy working at a hotel. Every character that we encounter is somewhat attracted to Tom Cruise. And they do react sexually to him, yeah. Yeah, and it's a really, uh, that's a really cool scene between the two of them. This actress, uh, the only other thing I, I remember her being, and Vanessa Shaw left this impression with me. She's a prostitute who uh, takes Cruz into her place. She uh, appeared in the remake of The Hills of Eyes, among many others. And Pollock certainly does a nice job in his role. I like the movie a lot. There's a lot of fun facts. It's the longest shoot of all time at 400 and some days because it took Kubrick years and years and 
and years to make this movie. And he kept Kidman and Cruz especially kind of locked down for a long time. And, and some people think it was a mistake. It was an unfinished film. But I know for a fact this was the film that he wanted to present. Is it though? But I think the European cut that I want to talk about is the film that he wanted. But because he was going to be getting the dreaded NC-17 rating, because in the orgy scene there's some pretty explicit sex, a, a bad decision, whether that was Kubrick's or not, is debatable, was to have these digital bodies mask uh, a couple scenes where graphic sex is happening. If I had a criticism, it'd be more a criticism of the theatrical cut. That decision was made and happened, and it looked like something out of an Austin Powers movie more than, more than this uh, Stanley Kubrick film with all these kind of big ideas so it still works for me i've watched it a lot i've watched it probably as many times as i've watched the exorcist and natural born killers and it was very close to cracking my 10 favorite movies of all time list it and it clockwork orange and 2001 space odyssey are all very close for me and i'm an enormous kubrick fan he's probably you know, number two to scorsese for me but i certainly understand people that don't like this movie and i'm curious where you are at with it uh, I don't think we have a finished product. It's not the origin scene per se, although, I mean, it's pretty laughable. I'm assuming the European cut has the uh, bodies removed, yes? Yes. Yeah, like I, I've seen the unedited orgy scene. Is that the only thing that's in the European cut that's different? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's really got the North American audiences for some reason. Yeah, the ending is a bit problematic and it really feels incomplete because Kubrick is very much the moralist in this movie. Uh, he's mm. big on monogamy and sex outside of relationship is death. I would have been more intrigued to have Dr. Bill Hartford in the hospital and seeing the dead body of Nick Nightingale sort of go on by and kind of go, oh, is this real or is this is this a dream? Uh, that to me would have been the more suitable ending instead of we know what we have to do now. Fuck. But it felt like that that felt like a typical Kubrick ending. Is I it? mean, the last the last moment of Clockwork Orange is not that different. I'm cured. I'm singing and then the rain starts playing. I mean, it's a similar type of strange feeling you're left with i mean in life there's no answers to this like what was going on with this orgy there's this this girl was murdered and it was a ritual cult type of thing because she shows up dead the next day and in that confrontation scene with sydney pollock towards the end cruz says what kind of a hoax leads to a, this girl being in the morgue right now that creepy character following Cruz around for during the third act it, to me it was just a very unsettling feeling and that I, I was left with like how much of this can I believe and and not believe you know a few other people I want to mention Lily Sobieski pretty young uh, when she shot this plays that whole thing is so depraved he goes to get a costume for the orgy and the owner of the place catches his daughter having sex with these businessmen. And the next morning, oh, we reached an agreement. And the whole time, Lily Sobieski is like really coming on to Tom Cruise and, and, and that kind of thing. And it's like, there's just all kinds of really disturbing things in this movie. I think it's technically well-made, beautiful cinematography. Some people don't like the music score. I like the music score. To me, it built a lot of tension. I love the acting and I, I felt Kubrick's presence throughout. So you're you're are, are you kind of of the theory that he wasn't done with the movie yet uh i think he hadn't given it i know he gave it to warner brothers and then he died i think there's no way he would have okayed the the computerized figurine no and, i think that was spin i mean i think they I, like 
He wanted an R-rated. I, I think that might be true. He wanted it to have an R rating. He didn't want it to be limited because then it wouldn't play in mainstream theaters if it was NC-17 because of the rules. But I, I don't see him okay in that. And it was badly done digital too. It wasn't, you it's, know, it's, you could tell. Um, I think he would have, I don't know. I'm hypothesizing. I think he would have taken a look at the ending and went, no, leave it more on a darker, is it real or is it not real kind of note. Like I said, I go back to... I would have I, I would have shown the dead body of Nick Nightingale in the hospital and have Bill go oh, oh. It, it just seems so abrupt and incomplete with the ending and it's signaling that their marriage is going to survive this like, I mean she, the Kidman character talks about you know over a lifetime of shared experiences this is one night and he doesn't really I mean he goes to the orgy he doesn't engage in any sexual acts the only thing that really he does wrong is he goes back to the prostitute's apartment and, and tries tries to seduce the other woman that i mean that would be like not good like he but he was so close if it hadn't been for that phone call he would have had sex yeah. with the prostitute and he would have been hiv positive yeah uh, um, yeah it deals with the very fragile heterosexual male ego <laughs> it is there's a general theme in Kubrick's film of his disdain of the 1% or the upper class. We see it in Barry Lyndon. We see it in The Shining. We uh, see it in Dr. Strangelove. You know, organized groups that have way too much power. And we see it in Eyes Wide Shut. This is a recurring theme. It's very blunt and obvious. Obviously, he's not a Bob Hope fan. Um, so that that aspect is intriguing to me why why do you think all the characters react sexually to tom cruise to the bill hartford character i don't, i mean I, I, he seems like he like he he is obviously he has a lot of privilege but he does actually seem like a caring guy like mm -hmm. anytime he's talking to anybody he's trying to be respectful and mm -hmm. i think he just has that kind of like we you were talking about some friends in relation to crash who have absolutely no trouble and i think it was just something about this guy he had that kind of charisma but he was never really aware until now that he had that effect on people. And it was pointed out to him by his wife that the women that you are, you know, that are coming into your office and take, having to take their clothes off, they may be attracted to you. They may be, you know, what, like, like I was with this uh, Navy officer or whatever. And then, and then he starts to become aware of this. He's like, okay, well, she had this fantasy of leaving me. And I guess I am attractive to some people. And it's almost like he just has gone through life without realizing this but he likes to flirt we see that with the two girls at the oh, christmas party which leads to someone. he's aware someone yeah i think he's naive to the fact that he thinks women see sexuality in a more puritan form and that mm -hmm. they don't have similar thoughts to males yeah but There's that's the one the, uh, the daughter of the patient when he goes to see that his patient has died and he's making that home visit he, he's shocked when when the daughter kisses him mm -hmm. And that's when he kind of starts to realize some of this. So, well, it's interesting. I, I, I read lots of reviews of this of this film going into this show, mm -hmm. and although I disagreed with one interpretation, actually, I disagreed with a lot of the interpretations of it. But that's their their lens. The one reviewer said that Kubrick was a, was obsessed with the female gaze, and I don't think that's at all what. Mm. 
No, no. Way more interested in the male gaze. And I guess their naivete somewhat. Mm -hmm. I would be more intrigued. I do agree with you that the Nicole Kidman character is far more intriguing than the Bill character. I, if they would have switched roles and have Nicole go down on this journey of sexual temptation and exploration, that would have been more intriguing for me. Yeah. Um, it's not a sexy movie. Like Crash, a lot of this, there's not even like, well, I guess there is there is sex. There's sex, but it's old and mechanical and not passionate. And I think a lot of people were expecting, you know, heat with this movie and, and it's not. It's it's yeah. more interested in pathology than it is sexuality. And and also that, that it was savagely critiquing power structures, mostly power structures by men, by the patriarch. So the aspect of the cult is far more intriguing than it than it is Bill's sexual journey. I, I like the journey. I went along on the journey, and I what I liked about it <clears throat> liked about it a little bit more was the second journey. Yeah, which feels dangerous, and he's given some perspective that if I had done these impulsive things out of emotion last night, there could be all kinds of consequences. I could be going home and lying to my wife, and I could be passing on a virus to her. I I could have been I could have cost this woman her life. You know, there, there, there's a lot of stuff in there. Really like Todd Field. He's a he's an interesting director. He made a movie that I love called In the Bedroom, and he plays Nick Nightingale, who is this old medical school of of cruises but he became a, a piano player and he's a piano player at this or organ player at this at this orgy right mm -hmm. and he tells Cruz about it and that's that's what leads him to to get in there and he gives them the the password i i feel like it's a movie i always having to defend though well there's there was such hysteria about kubrick uh, as this grand master of film and and there was a lot of mystery surrounding the making of this movie so mm -hmm. when it was released and it was not what people expected i mean if they you know people wanted some people wanted to go see tom cruise and nicole kidman fuck you know good yeah. good looking people engage in sexual acts and we get some of it, but it's pretty vanilla. You know, I, I heard a joke, you know, saying about if there ever was a director's cut of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, that film would have broken $200 million because we're seeing Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie bump uglies. It's been as more sex scenes with that, which is all in Cruz's head. He keeps replaying and it gets more, I think it's clever in a way, the sex gets more passionate, more extreme mm -hmm. every time he thinks about his wife with that with that young naval officer. And, and so Kidman has more she reveals more than Cruz does in, in, in the film, which maybe has problems. She's the, she's there. She's there to stab at Bill. She's hurt that Bill was flirting yeah. with the two women. And if he wouldn't have been stopped, who knows what would have happened? Forget the fact that she was tempted by that rather slimy Scandinavian old guy. Yes. But she makes the decision to go. No, I'm drunk. I'm good. Out of here. Where I Cruz, feel like she was in more in control though. Like yeah, I feel like she was more in control of the situation, and Cruz was going along on the ride with me. Yeah. I think Kubrick was limited by his old view of sexuality. And by the time Eyes Wide Shut came out, we had had films like Damage, like Basic Instinct, like a lot, well, a lot of films that whether it dealt with it maturely or not about human sexuality, that it, it, people were expecting a very erotic movie. And it's not. Even even the, the orgy scene, the sex is so over the top. Very mechanical and there's no emotion connected to it. Yeah. That but I, 
so weird though that like the, the whole religious ceremony and the purification of these women who very pagan may have been prostitutes may not have been i don't know look a talent like kubrick's a talented filmmaker uh, it's like watching going into a steven spielberg film or going into an oliver stone film there's a level of expectation that you're going to get challenged and yes eyes wide shut is challenging part of the challenge is what is real and what is not i think that's one of the reasons why in his view all the people are reacting to him sexually is that real or not i don't know i know blue is supposed to represent the dreamlike state and red is reality um not subtle (laughs) eyes wide shut is not a subtle film it's not natural born killers hammering you on the head Um, look i like it i also defend it i can understand some of its criticisms there was a great queer interpretation of eyes wide shut where (laughs) and i uh where this gay reviewer saying i think it's brilliant it shows the lack of imagination of heterosexual men and and in some ways i know that eyes wide shut is very faithful to the novel tremavel but i think some of the themes that kubrick is exploring has been done and has been done better by other filmmakers but Look, Kubrick, one of my two or three favorite Kubricks, and I—I I mean, I think it was a, a more interesting final film than some people got. I guess. Oh no, no, no! Look, look, like it's—it's it's a challenging movie. Kubrick is is talented, but like this is the man that gave us two thousand and one, mm-hmm. and the man that gave us Clockwork Orange and Full Metal Jacket. So I guess, look, I loved Eyes Wide Shut when I first saw it. I remember walking out of that movie and felt moved and stimulated, like not sexually, but just like, what did I just see? There's so much to unpack and my goodness. I mean, I still haven't seen anything quite like it. I've seen movies deal with those themes, but not in that way. I wish I would have wanted a more a younger Kubrick to do this movie and to see him. It would be interesting, yeah. Yeah, younger Kubrick. Yeah. It's still be kind of a emotionally removed though i don't think it would be the hot passionate whatever that people thought it was going to be because i mean his movies were always lolita which i reviewed on my very first episode of the show yeah is it's very disturbing story and any reality is 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 judged and i mean it's like the person who ends up crying and getting the most emotional is is the predator and it's 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 a really interesting take on things. So I think Kubrick, much like Cronenberg, is it's almost like the scientific approach to this, as opposed to Spielberg, who makes us feel every yeah. movie, whether it makes sense or not. He's um, he he is very analytical. I think the difference between Cronenberg and Kubrick is Kubrick is way more of a moralist, where. Cronenberg is very not passive, but very analytical and non-judgmental. Yeah, and that's why there's okay, this is what it is. Take what you want from it, as opposed to look at this sin and look how it's being dealt with by society, by that Kubrick does in some ways stone. Yeah. Well, in many ways, stone as well. Yeah. Well, um, like I said, I would have been more intrigued if we had the scene where Kidman tells Cruz about her in her mind, her infidelity, and then follow her not Cruz. Mm-hmm. That to me would have been more the, the, the more intriguing story. There's a theory that Kubrick did not write women very well. Yeah. And, you know, we could sort of see that a little bit with Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Yeah. Um, he actually brought in a female screenwriter for that very reason. Yeah. And and so I think he most naturally understood the Tom Cruise type journey. And that's mm-hmm. probably why I focused on that as opposed to, but I, I would have loved to spend more time with that Alice character than, yeah. than I, but I thought it was one of those Hannibal Lecter, like you only have so much screen time, but should have been up for best actress type of things. I would support that more than her win for the hours. For, mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of 
Interesting thing, a couple of weird fun facts. I might edit them out or not. I, I don't know. But apparently Kidman was considering quitting acting. At this time, Kubrick talked her out of it. Said, you are so amazing. You you have to keep doing this. And I, I think before this, to die for, I was like, oh, this this woman is amazing. And it Eyes Wide Shut solidified what a great actor Nicole Kidman is, kind of separating herself from being known as Tom Cruise's wife. Yeah. And she's just, to me, gone better and better and better. There's not all wonderful but I, I i'm glad that he encouraged her to continue to act mm -hmm. and the other thing was uh, it makes sense to me like one of the great theater experiences of my life is i saw alan coming as the mc in cabaret when they oh, first wow. went to new york in 1999 and kubrick did not know that alan coming is scottish he cast him and he thought he was american based on the audition tape it wasn't until he he showed up that and started talking in his own voice he realized oh you're you're, you're scottish so He's a little bit to me like uh, not as as prominent Gary Oldman in a way. And, you know, that's just another character I would have was intrigued by and would have liked to have followed around. Like the story of the Vanessa Shaw character, that, that prostitute, or the Nick Nightingale story, like what actually happened with him. With not knowing the answers to that, like if it was all spelled out for me that he died at the end, mm -hmm. and I knew that for sure. I'm not sure I would have been as bothered by the end, but mm -hmm. just not knowing, oh, he went back to his family in Seattle or whatever. Mm -hmm. We don't know if the entire thing is a lie, how much truth Cruz has been given, but he has to move on with his life. I don't buy that their marriage is rock solid after this though i'm an enormous fan of eyes wide shut i think you you defend it you you like it but i'm not sure you love it is that fair i like it a lot i could but i definitely understand some of the criticisms of it. it it's more just the lens in which it's presented but at the same time this is stanley's movie now in 2020 i'm more intrigued by different voices you know exploring yeah. human sexuality yeah. um, and like I, like I said eyes wide shut came after films like bliss that were released that show uh, more more than just a straight man's point of view of sexuality we've had that with last tango in paris we've had it with with others that i um I, i'd be more intrigued in following their arcs yeah. a female arc or shane for example i mean i know shane, yeah. shane is, is showing different is talking about different things more about sexual addiction but just having different lenses to look through human sexuality and i'd say if this group of films had been in the last five years but we're dealing with 70s 80s 90s right yeah uh, and and now I I hope that what you're what you're wanting from different voices in film is is going to happen, and I think it's starting. We're not there yet. Women don't. They basically just don't think like that. Millions of years of evolution, right? Right? Men have to stick it in every place they can, but for women, women, it is just about security and commitment and whatever the fuck else. A little oversimplified, Alice, but yes, something like that. If you men only knew. I'll tell you what I do know is you got a little stone tonight, you've been trying to pick a fight with me, and now you're trying to make me jealous. But you're not the jealous type, are you? No, I'm not. You've never been jealous about me, have you? No, I haven't. And why haven't you ever been jealous about me? Well, I don't know, Alice. Maybe because you're my wife. Maybe because you're the mother of my child. And I know you would never be unfaithful to me. You are very, very 
sure of yourself, aren't you? No. I'm sure of you. Do you think that's funny? laughing fit right okay lee thanks for uh taking this time especially on the first day of your summer holiday here to talk about these six controversial movies and i hope i can have you on again and maybe uh a lighter set of films too we could talk about that <laughs> might be all right <laughs> there are big issues we were talking about here yeah so. that's good man it's good Three points here and uh we'll add them up start off with cronenberg's crash how many points are you giving crash i gave crash uh 10 points then the last temptation of christ 14 points. And Last Tango in Paris. Five. The Natural Born Killers Director's Cut. Five. And The Exorcist. 16. And finally, Eyes Wide Shut. 10. All right. Nice even distribution. Yeah, I, I don't think we're far off. I'm not sure we're going to be uh, fighting too much on this one here. So I gave Crash seven points. It, it was having the, the second half for me, but I, I have a few criticisms of it, but it is such an original, interesting film. So definitely worth worthwhile. With The Last Temptation of Christ, I gave it seven points. I admire it a lot. It seems maybe a little bit low for a Scorsese film, but as I mentioned, I really like all six of these movies. So I was trying to spread out the points as evenly as I as I could here. So Last Tango in Paris. This is the one I was wrestling with, and I gave it six points. Give one more point than you did. We're pretty much in the same place. Yeah, the what went on on set is inexcusable, but it's an interesting enough film in that way, but it's really colored my my view of the film, unfortunately. Uh, Natural Born Killers Director's Cut. I like it quite a bit more than you do. I gave it 10 points. It, it still works for me. When I watched it last week, I thought, I keep thinking when I see it, I'm going to be liking it less, but uh, I'm, I'm still a big fan of it. Uh, but Exorcist, I gave 15 points to. My favorite horror movie of all time. In fact, that feels a little bit low to me. But again, I was trying to spread these out because... Eyes Wide Shut is one of my favorite movies of all time. I also gave it 15 points here. So the movie that had the most points is uh, The Exorcist with 31. Eyes Wide Shut had 25 points. Last Temptation of Christ had 21. Crash had 17. Natural Born Killers Director's Cut had 15. And with 11 points, the movie that has to leave my movie collection is Last Tango in Paris. So Lee, what would you like me to do with Last Tango in Paris? Uh, I would love it if you did a pseudo tango walking in to, let's say, either Value Village or the United Way and donate the movie there so other people can see it. Perfect. Yeah, I think Value Village and this will be uh, the, the second donation to Value Village in the history of the show. So I, I love that idea. Thanks again for being on the show and uh, hopefully I'll have you on again soon. Just want to say before I wrap up the show, please uh, check out uh, the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I'm on Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, Spotify. Please uh, share share the show 
if you have any comments about this show or any of the shows, then please email me at shelfsheddingmovieshow at gmail.com. Uh, or you can send a comment on my Facebook group uh, for the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Uh, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun doing it. You know, I love talking movies with you. This is an amazing experience. To everybody out there, please keep seeing the movies, keep buying movies, keep collecting them. Support artists, whether it's theater or film artists. Uh, COVID has not been that kind to uh, a lot of people, but but please just, you know, we value your hard-earned money, but it's really, really important that continue to support the film, the film industry.